0: Okay, well, I'm now going to do what I said I wouldn't do, and release the whole conversation I had with Omar Aziz. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes to explain why I've decided to do this, and provide some context to the conversation itself. First, why have I changed my mind? As I said before, I didn't want to release this podcast because I thought it was a terrible conversation, okay? and terrible in ways that were not actually interesting. I was attempting something with Omer that he wasn't up to, okay? and I failed repeatedly, to get the conversation on track. So it was a failure on both our parts to have a productive conversation. And I just felt that broadcasting this failure wouldn't be good for anyone, and that listeners would find it incredibly frustrating. But I've received an extraordinary amount of pressure, both well-intentioned and not, to release this podcast in response to the cries of censorship I heard from Omer and Glenn Greenwald, and a wide range of silly people. And this pressure has come not merely from the silly themselves, but from my actual supporters who say that my not releasing the podcast is making the job of defending me much more difficult than it needs to be. According to many of you, even though I told Omer in advance that I wouldn't release the podcast if I thought our conversation had been a total waste of time, my not releasing it is too easily spun as my hiding something, and incredibly as my infringing on Omer's right to free speech. Okay, so many of you tell me that I am harming my cause by not releasing it. Now, I don't know whether you're right or not, okay, but I've decided to assume that you are. Now, paradoxically, my claim that the podcast was too boring to release is no longer true, right? Because given all the controversy and given the charges that Omer has leveled at me, given the speculation that he might have defeated me in a debate and revealed my ignorance of all things Islamic, the podcast is suddenly very interesting to many of you. Not to me, but to you. So, I've decided to adapt to these changes and release the podcast. But before I do, I want to give you a few facts. I was absolutely clear with Omer about the format of this conversation in advance, about my reasons for insisting upon it, and about the fact that I might ditch the whole podcast if we proved unable to have a productive conversation. As you'll hear, we discussed the possibility of my not airing the podcast at the very end of the conversation, in a surprisingly collegial way, given how ugly this aftermath has become. And he seemed to understand. Now, on this point you should know, I've been on the receiving end of this sort of thing many times before. For instance, I once sat with Robert Wright, the journalist with whom I've had many disagreements, for a two-hour interview on his video podcast, The Meaning of Life TV. Now, to my knowledge, that conversation never saw the light of day. I have no idea why. It has never once occurred to me in the intervening years to cry censorship. And Robert never explained why he didn't release the podcast. And he never told me that was a possibility. I once sat for an hour in the NPR studios and spoke with Guy Raz for his TED radio hour about the talk I gave at TED on the foundations of morality. Guy killed the episode because he had trouble finding another speaker to, quote, balance my views. Now, I found this annoying. It is annoying, but never in a million years would it occur to me to think that Guy had infringed on my freedom of speech, nor would it occur to me to publish an article in Salon alleging that Guy had said some extraordinarily hateful and embarrassing things in our conversation as a way of trying to force him to release it as the only way to clear his reputation, which is what Omer has done to me. Now, when Omer grows up, if he grows up, he will realize that people make editorial decisions he doesn't always like, and unlike the way I've treated him, they usually won't tell him about this possibility in advance. And they won't let him make his own copy of the broadcast and release it just because he wants to. As I told Omer in an email exchange explaining my position before our conversation, I once went on the Today Show. Okay, I took two days out of my life. I traveled across the country. I spent 90 minutes doing a roundtable interview with a few religious people and Meredith Vieira. And my appearance was cut down to a single sentence and a reaction shot of me looking confused. There is no recourse when this happens to you. People get to control their own broadcasts. So this charge of censorship is ridiculous. But I've been persuaded by many of you that even though it's ridiculous, it still looks like I'm hiding something. And that I don't trust people to come to their own judgments about who made more sense in my conversation with Omer. And there is some truth to both of these claims. Okay, first, I have been hiding something. My, my decision not to publish this was, by definition, a decision to hide something. I've been hiding a fruitless and surprisingly painful waste of my time. Okay. And very early in this conversation, you'll hear my patience begin to fray. In fact, I don't start with a lot of patience. Because remember, I was talking to someone who had already proved to be amazingly dishonest in what he wrote about my book with Majid. He wrote a viciously stupid review in Salon to begin with, and this is why I wanted to talk to him. But once I started getting wrapped around the axle with him, in attempting to discuss his review, I got very annoyed. And that certainly didn't help the conversation get on track, and I absolutely consider that a failing of mine. This is not who I want to be in the world, and it's not who I want to be on my own podcast. So, given that I couldn't get Omer to stay on topic, and I couldn't even get him to realize that he ever went off topic, and I grew more and more frustrated by this, and we never arrived at an understanding of anything of substance. It's only natural that I didn't want to publish the result. In fact, when I declared the broadcast too boring to release, that wasn't quite accurate. Okay, the truth is, I found it too boring to even review. Okay, I started to listen to it, but I found that I just could not bear to spend any more time with Omer, really with me and Omer. I hate who I was with Omer. But in response to this controversy, I've now listened to the whole thing for the first time, and most of it is terribly boring, but parts of it aren't, actually, and I recommend the last hour over the first two if you're only going to listen to part of it. I can't say I recommend you listen to any of it. In my view, this is a conversation that should have never happened. I should have recognized, based on what Omer wrote in Salon the first time around, that there was no way I could have a real conversation with him. Now, as to the second point about my not trusting people to come up with their own intelligent assessment of what went on here, that's actually somewhat true. There are many people I don't trust to do this. In fact, I trust that they will come to the wrong conclusion about what happened here. In fact, some already have, based on the excerpts I released in my last podcast. Many people have declared that I broke my promise to Omer by releasing those clips. I said I wouldn't edit him, and now I have. But of course, I only release those clips to respond to the false charges he's now made in multiple articles online. In any case, you and Omer are now getting the whole podcast. Be careful what you wish for. But let me give you one example of how many will get confused by Omer. Consider this a brief field guide to human stupidity. Listen to this clip that I aired on my last podcast. So, that, I mean, the problem for me in, in general, just to step back before we get into the text here, is that I understand Abu Bakr al Baghdadi better than you understand me and Majid. And, I, and I, can, I can actually say this with certainty because you are absolutely wrong about me and Majid. And, and I could ascribe beliefs to al Baghdadi at random and do a better job than you've done here. I could throw the I Ching and come to a better understanding of his motives then you have come to an understanding of ours by reading and reviewing our book. The
1: the only thing I want to say to that is I think I understand Baghdadi better than you and Majid understand Baghdadi because I actually factor into account his political strategy, and his geostrategic policy that he's had in Syria and in Iraq that's allowed Al-Qaeda in Iraq the Islamic State in Iraq to go from being a ragtag group of rebels that was decimated in 2011 to be this very powerful militia in 2016 and okay. that th- like the political factors and I hope we get to them
0: those are things that you and Majid don't discuss I don't I don't see you taking an interest in Okay but but that's a totally separate point I mean whether you understand Baghdadi better than I do we can discuss I'm saying that I understand him this person who is Practically infinitely distant from me on the moral and political and religious and intellectual spectrum, better than you understand me and Majid, and we have told you our motives for writing this book. Right. So that that's what I find so strange here. Sam, I don't care about your motives, though. I don't like for me. It's what the book says. No, no, right? No, you, and what no, you said before. You describe. Our, uh, we're going to get into this because one of the things I'm going to take issue with very early on in your review is your ascription of motives to us. Here is what actually happened there. I made a point about how completely Omer misunderstands my and Majid's motives for writing our book. He did this in his Salon Review, in the very opening paragraph. I sought to illustrate this by saying that I understand Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi better than he understands me and Majid. It may have seemed like a hyperbolic example, but it actually isn't. I'm claiming that is literally true. Omer then just changed the subject and claim that he understands Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi better than either Majid or I do, because we ignore politics and he doesn't. When I pulled him back to the actual topic I had raised, he claimed not to care about our motives in the first place. This is wrong on every conceivable level. Okay, he changed the subject. What he said was just a non-sequitur. He then made a claim about Mayan Majid's ignoring politics, which is itself untrue. It's especially untrue of Majid. His whole focus is on political Islam. And then when I brought him back to the topic, he denied that he cares about our motives at all, okay, which is also totally false. The first paragraph of his essay directly impugns our motives. He claims we wrote our book just to make money. And he had said as much on a previous podcast. Okay, so this is a small masterpiece of deflection and dishonesty which yes, many people will not recognize for what it is. Even now, when I perform an autopsy on this moment, many people will not understand what Omer did wrong. In fact, I've already heard from people who listened to that clip on my last podcast who said he really got you there on politics. He understands al-Baghdadi better than you and Majid do. Okay. These people are destined to love Omer's side of this podcast, but for anyone actually paying attention, You will hear me struggling in vain to keep Omer on topic. He confidently asserts points, like the point about al-Baghdadi you just heard, that are non-sequiturs. Sometimes I follow him down that rabbit hole, and we wind up discussing these topics, and sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I am sure his audience will interpret that as my having conceded the irrelevant point he just raised. But as you'll hear all too clearly in places, I found the resulting conversation deeply frustrating. If there is anything in this podcast that embarrasses me, it's just how annoyed I let myself get, and very early on, merely having a conversation with another human being. And and not to demonize Omer, I think that most of this behavior on his part is probably unconscious. Most of the time he's going off point and being effectively evasive, I don't think he even knows what he's doing. He's very articulate, and he has these chunks of language on the hard drive he wants to download. But the true things he says are usually irrelevant. And the relevant things he says are usually false. And that is a toxic combination, okay, especially for me. I mean, that, that is my kryptonite. Okay, so you will hear me at my least patient. And I'm not proud of who I was in those moments. And you will also hear a fair amount of despair from me at points. This is not the despair of someone who was worried he was losing a debate. On the contrary, if you want to view this as a debate, there are several moments where I appear to win it outright by full knockout. True to form, Ulmer didn't realize he had been knocked out, but you will. I wasn't trying to have a debate. I was trying to have a truly honest conversation. And the despair you hear, especially at the end, was over the discovery that this just wasn't possible. But here's what you will not find in this podcast. You will not find any of the things that Omer says you would find there. Virtually every word in his recap of our conversation on Salon is a lie. He claims that I said things I didn't say. He read into my silences other things I don't believe and would never say. He claims to have demonstrated my ignorance on topics about which I'm not ignorant and which were among the many irrelevant points he raised and we barely touched. But most incredible of all, he said that somewhere... In this conversation you are about to hear, I, quote, demonized Muslims to such an extreme degree that it verged on bloodlust, and that I communicated in some way that, quote, Muslim-looking or brown-skinned bodies were of no human value to me. Now, I don't know how he thought he could get away with that. Okay, the man, and, and he is a man, he's not a teenager. He's a journalist in his 20s, getting his law degree at one of the best law schools on earth. Okay, he's published in the New Republic and the New York Times. He's an adult, and he is attempting to destroy my reputation by alleging that I said things I didn't say in a conversation that was recorded. Okay? And I have the recording, which I can choose to release, as I'm doing now. And he did this so that I would release it. What on earth was he thinking? Well, I'll tell you what I think he's thinking. I think Omer understands that he is writing primarily for an audience that does not care whether or not he is honest. They just want to see the people they disagree with demonized. And this is the audience that Glenn Greenwald writes for and Chris Hedges and Reza Aslan. And I'm afraid Omer is right. But that's not my audience. And when you guys tell me that I've done something that makes me look less than honest, that matters to me. A lot. And what's more, it quite obviously matters to you. I'm often charged by people like Glenn Greenwald with having a cult of followers who just agree with everything I say. As far as I can tell, your tolerance for me appearing to be intellectually dishonest is non-existent, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And the fact that so many of you thought it looked shady for me not to release the full podcast, that really bothered me. So here it is, Now, as you might imagine, I've elected not to spend the $500 to $1,000 it would have cost me to clean up all the breaths and mouth noises. We've edited out all the big Skype glitches and bathroom breaks and coughing fits. And there were many moments when Omer and I were talking over one another, which on Skype just becomes a total mess and you can barely understand what's being said. And the same thing winds up being said a moment later once one person just stops trying to interrupt the other. So, in the interest of preserving your sanity and your hearing, we cut those bits as well. But just to be clear, every meaningful sentence of our conversation has been preserved. And now, for better or worse, I give you Omar Aziz I've got Omar Aziz on the line. Omer, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: I expect this will be a difficult conversation, and in fact i'm I'm pretty sure it's going to be difficult, but uh, hopefully it will also be useful. Uh, But before we get into it, please tell our listeners a little about yourself and and where you're from and and what you're doing now. Sure.
1: Um, Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to exploring our areas of disagreement and potentially of uh, of agreement. So I'm a law student at Yale Law School. I focus on human rights and foreign policy. Um, First and foremost, I consider myself a writer. I studied in England and France and Canada and now the U.S., Um, born to a Muslim family that originally came from Pakistan. And I'm interested in all of these issues around religion, around human rights, around foreign policy, and in exploring fundamentally the best way forward. So in a nutshell, that's what I'm about.
0: Mm. So you're getting your JD now at Yale, right? that's right so what did you do your undergraduate in and where did you do that so i did my undergraduate in politics um but
1: really more so in books um because I, I spent it more um not going to class of course and i did it in canada at queens Uni- queens university i did my master's in international relations in um in in cambridge but again i didn't go to class i spent my time traveling uh throughout the middle east and i think that was really where my perceptions of Islam and the Muslim world changed a lot. I think before that, um, I was reacting, as many people who come out of religious families do, towards um, toward the religion and culture of their birth. And so I probably would have agreed with you more at that point. But then you know, I went to Iraq and Jordan, for example, and did some reporting and saw it for myself. Um, and then went and, and c- came to Yale to begin my JD.
0: Are you a practicing Muslim? You were born into a Muslim family and have been identified as a Muslim all your life? Or you or you say you, you came to your commitment to Islam later in life.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I come from an interesting family that I think is representative really um, in terms of one of my parents being very secular and very skeptical and one of my parents being very believing but not proselytizing um, and so I was practicing at one point I don't like that term now I identify culturally as uh, as a Muslim and was within the community of Islam because it was part of my upbringing you know when Eid comes around once a year I want to be with my family and want to want to celebrate but I'm philosophically agnostic and so you could say I might even agree with you on the question of whether God exists
0: <laughs> right right okay Well, I'm talking to you now because of the book review you published in Salon, my favorite website, in which you wrote very critically and dismissively about the book I wrote with Majid Nawaz, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And uh, so rather than just talk to you about the review in general, I'm going to have you read it out loud on the podcast so that we can discuss it point for point. Now, you've agreed to do this, but under some duress. You told me by email you think this is a terrible idea. But I, yeah. I, I want our listeners to understand why I've structured the conversation this way. Now, first, y- you can say anything you want. I mean, I'm simply insisting that you also read every word of your review so that our listeners can hear it and I can respond to it. But you can make any caveats or supporting points you want, and we can talk about anything under the sun. I just want to deal with your review first and and pretty systematically. Um, yeah. So there, so there's ab- I mean, just to be clear, there's absolutely nothing about this that is closing down debate or conversation. I'm not gonna edit anything you say unless you ask me to.
1: Um,
0: And um, so here is why I wanna focus on the review. First, it's a very common experience for a person to read a review like this or, or even to write one and to have no idea what the target of this kind of criticism could or would say in response. Because there's simply no good format in which to answer charges like this. And so as an experiment, I want to use my podcast for this, if only just this once. Uh, And in particular, I want our listeners to know what it's like, and I want you to know what it's like for me to read a review like this, actually almost in real time, sentence by sentence. Because it seems to me you can't possibly know how fully this essay of yours misfires from my point of view. I mean, you, you took the time to write it. Mm -hmm. Presumably, you think your statements are clear and accurate and that you've built a very damning case against me and Majid, in particular me. But there's almost no single sentence here that survives scrutiny. And I want to demonstrate this for you.
1: Yeah, and let me just make a quick point. My my initial reservations to doing it in this format, and I highlighted this when you said it's never been done before, and my suggestion that it's never been done before is because this could descend into a kind of Talmudic parsing of, you know, single sentences and words that won't be helpful at all. Now, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say that's, that's not going to happen. Um, on the second point, I think in an earlier podcast you said that I really hate you, and or I hate Majid, and I hate you even more. And I want to correct that. I don't hate you, and I don't hate Majid. I find some of your ideas to be repugnant, and I was resp- responding to those. I didn't call you a racist. I didn't call you a bigot at all. I didn't call you any names. I w- I'm merely contending and responding to the ideas that I read in your book, and so that was my my intention, at least.
0: Okay, well, that, that's fine, and we'll and we'll get into what you said specifically and its sure. implications. And I and again, it's not going to be a rabbinical parsing of every word, but I just I do want to move through it systematically. And I I, I want to also make clear that that my goal isn't to embarrass you, and my goal really isn't even to debate. Ultimately, I'm I'm just I'm trying to bridge the gap between your essay and the the cynicism that it communicates to me, and a what I would consider a real conversation. But I think doing this is going to take some real work because it's you know I, I think we're very far apart on the page and. I'm, I'm going to, you know, obviously I'm going to cut you some slack because I understand that no one writes an article like this anticipating to then have to read it to its primary target. And I, I can only assume that even if you kept your opinions about me as they are, you would probably phrase a few of these points differently in the context of an actual conversation. So I, I, I think one thing to make clear up front is that your insults don't matter to me. I, I mean, I don't take anything you've written personally. But you shouldn't. The problem is, I don't take anything you've written to heart at all, because it's as though you're writing from a, another universe here. And this is what I find so troubling, and this is why I want to have this conversation. So that, I mean, the problem for me, in general, just to step back before we get into the text here, is that I understand Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi better than you understand me and Majid, and I, and I can actually say this with certainty, because you are absolutely wrong about me and Majid, and, and I could ascribe beliefs to al-Baghdadi at random and do a better job than you've done here. I could throw the I Ching and come to a better understanding of his motives then you have come to an understanding of ours by reading and reviewing yeah. our book. The, o- the only thing I want to say to that is that
1: I think I understand Daddy better than you and Majid understand Daddy because I actually factor into account his political strategy, and his geostrategic policy that he's had in Syria and in Iraq that's allowed Al-Qaeda in Iraq the Islamic State in Iraq to go from being a ragtag group of rebels that was decimated in 2011 to be this very powerful militia in 2016 and that th- like the political factors and I hope we get to them those are things that you and Majid
0: don't discuss and I don't I don't see you taking an interest in Okay but but that's a totally separate point I mean whether you understand Baghdadi better than I do we can discuss I'm saying that I understand him this person who is practically infinitely distant from me on the moral and political and religious and intellectual spectrum, better than you understand me and Majid, and we have told you our motives, For writing this book right so that that's what i find so strange here sam
1: i don't care about your motives though i don't like for me it's what the book says and what you said
0: before you describe our we're going to get into this because one of the things i'm going to take issue with very early on in your review is your description of motives to us but again let me just step back for a second you're a very smart person who is capable of writing about these issues honestly i mean in fact i told you by email that you had a piece in the new republic about jihadism, I think it's called mm-hmm. The Soul of a Jihadist, mm-hmm. that I totally agreed with, right? So, so that's the mystery I want to attempt to resolve, that you could write an article on jihadism that I could recommend almost without reservation, mm-hmm. and yet you could review my dialogue with Majid so uncharitably mm-hmm. that I can honestly say, from my point of view, that you communicated nothing but your own confusion and prejudice. Okay so so my goal here again just to be clear is I want to bridge that gap essentially between your two articles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- I really think it's not going to be easy because from my point of view almost no sentence in your review does what you think it does. That's where we're starting and I think the only other thing I want to say before we before you start reading your review is that our listeners should know that I've sent you a version of it where I've marked a few I've marked many places where I think there's something for us to talk about and I did this because given the the time lag on Skype I didn't want to continually be talking over you as you began reading a new sentence or paragraph. So, you have the complete text of your review marked by me and you'll just read sections and then we'll pause and then begin speaking about relevant points.
1: Yeah, sure. And I hope that, you know, just just to respond to your previous point about my New Republic piece, which I still stand by, of course, there's a difference between examining the assumptions, the beliefs, and the motivations of an isolated extremist and then extrapolating that and saying that that is either representative of an authentic or legitimate form of Islam. And my my intention in writing this piece and in critiquing your views is that how do we actually get a reformation? how do we actually get cultural liberalism in the middle east and i propose that your solutions and majid solutions which focus on verses almost to the exclusion of politics is the wrong way forward so well, that
0: that's what i'll say on that okay well let's go please start with the title
1: sure um the, so the title that the salon editors put on this which and these are the only words in the entire piece that are not my own is sam harris's detestable crusade um And I think that I also want to have my original title, which I put, which they changed, of course. It it was originally called The Poverty of the Intellectuals, Sam Harris, Majid Nawaz, and the Illusion of Tolerance. And look, I wouldn't use a a phrase like detestable crusade, because to me that's clickbait nonsense. And that's what all editors from Time Immemorial have done. And so you can, you know, you can rebut that and we probably agree that that's not a helpful title. But okay. I stand by my own in saying that the ideas in here, in this, in this tract, were very often impoverished. Yes.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that, well, that's very interesting. But so, please, just read the full title and the subtitle, and then we'll we'll talk about it.
1: Yeah. Sure. Just give me a uh, here. So this this the full title was Sam Harris's Detestable Crusade. How His Latest Anti-Islam Tract Reveals his, the Bankruptcy of His Ideas. And the subtitle was, Harris's Haughty Ignorance and Chauvinism Are on Full Display in His New Book, A Dialogue with a Former Radical, by Omar Aziz.
0: Right. Okay, so, so it's interesting to, as I expected, you didn't write this title, and you're not actually happy with it. Which is, so now you are, I think, the third writer from Salon who I've communicated with. One of them is another Muslim who's just as critical of me as you are, who felt the need to apologize for the title that Salon put on their... No, 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 I I don't
1: apologize. I don't apologize because this is not my... these are not my words. They're not my article. But this happens with... you've written before for
0: for public uh, magazines as well, and you're well aware that editors choose the titles. I'm not saying you're apologizing for yourself, but it's not a title that you stand behind. Let me just point out, in case this blew by people too quickly, you know, as with almost every other Salon article about me, there isn't even a pretense of journalistic objectivity here. I mean, there's there's clearly an editorial policy there to make me look as bad as possible. And here the reader is told, just straight out told, that my work is detestable, my ideas are bankrupt, that I am haughty, ignorant, and chauvinistic. And I, and I pointed this out in my last interview with Salon. This This is the behavior of a tabloid. I mean, no real magazine or newspaper does this. But in any case, just just get into the article.
1: Yeah, sure. So let's start. There are a few get-rich-quick schemes left in modern publishing, but one that persists could be called Project Islamic Reformation. Writing a book that fits in this category is actually quite easy. First, label yourself a reformist. Never mind the congratulatory self-coronation the tag implies. It is necessary to segregate oneself from all the non-reformists out there. Second, Make your agenda clear at the outset by criticizing what is ailing Islam and Muslims. The Quran is a good place to start, because Muslims, especially in the Middle East, surely treat their holy book more like a military instruction manual than anything else. Third, propose a few solutions. Lest you be accused of nuance, the more vague and generic these are, the better. Fourth, soak up the inevitable inevitable publicity that awaits, and with it, your hard-earned cash. Voilà, Sam.
0: Okay, so you actually believe that writing a short book like this about reforming Islam for Harvard University Press is an extremely lucrative thing to do. I mean, if if you do, I need to educate you about the reality of publishing. And e- no, even but even I don't it, think it's
1: lucrative. Even I, if, if it maybe were it's
0: lucrative, it's easy though. It's it's simple. No, no, it's intellectual it, fast food, Sam. You describe this as a get rich quick scheme. Okay. And it, so even if this were a great way to make money, which it isn't, you actually think that money would be our primary motive in writing a book like this? I'm not sure what your primary motive is. I know that if I were to dish out a book about
1: Islam and use the words reformation and terrorist, I could get a book deal in about 5 seconds. In fact, I could write that kind of book in my sleep. It's not that diff- it's not that difficult to do. This is to me this is
0: intellectual fast food. And frankly, I think you guys could have done better. I mean, It's a different point. Okay, I understand you don't like the book and you think we could have written a better book. You're ascribing motives to us here, right? This is the first paragraph of your piece. You describe this as a get-rich-quick scheme. Now, I'm talking about your understanding of what Majid and I are up to. Now, I I find your cynicism here fairly breathtaking. I mean, you, you think Majid's career as a reformer, okay, as a former Islamist who spent years in an Egyptian prison, and who now seeks to deprogram Islamists and jihadists, incurring massive security concerns as a result, and foregoing every other opportunity he might have, you actually think that this is a get-rich-quick scheme on his part? You think this is how he thinks he can make the most money?
1: Look, I, I tell you that there's there's been a litany of books that have been published very recently. They're not scholarly tracks that repeat the same slogans over and over again. They're short pamphlets. And yes, I mean, maybe it's not get rich quick, but it's get rich soon, at least. You build a platform on it. You uh, accumulate a mass following based on people who love the idea of saying, telling Muslims that they should reform by cutting out verses of their holy book, which no other religion has been expected or demanded to do. And yes, I mean, I don't think it's a serious serious intellectual
0: exercise and again again omer it's a different point we can talk about whether it's a serious intellectual exercise but Uh, do you think it's difficult to
1: call for a a reform of islam in america today do you uh, actually think it's difficult does it threaten your security absolutely
0: we will get into this this is why one of the major
1: parties of the democracy are calling for have been calling for this in very fascistic tones i don't think it's an intellectually brave thing to do i'm sorry omer
0: we got to move through this systematically all right I'm talking about your description of motive. You are making assumptions here, which are flat wrong. First of all, there, there's Majid's case of being a reformer, and yeah. and all very the, little standing in Muslim communities. The, the price he's paid for this, all right. So you know the fact. I mean, he lost a wife and son over this, all right. And you are describing him as an opportunist who's just out to make a buck. Okay, now. And I, I want to return affiliation to that.
1: with right-wing organizations is probably why I would do that. Right. I mean, there's, there are plenty of reformers that are working on the ground every single treatment. day. I've, I'm, I'm not filibustering.
0: I'm, to- I'm trying to get back to the first point you're jumping off of, right, which is the ascription of motive. Now, speaking personally, I'm giving you information you don't actually have about me, all right? Speaking personally, right, the, the, the challenge for me is to make the work I do on this topic, the topic of Islam, remotely viable and not to have the resulting damage done to my reputation by people like you, not close the door to other opportunities. Viable to whom? Uh, Viable Viable to whom? To To Muslims? No, 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 no. To To even get paid for it. Okay, you you describe this as a get-rich-quick scheme, right? You realize that having people call you a racist, and a bigot, and a chauvinist, and an Islamophobe isn't good for your career, right? I mean, you, you realize there's a cost to this. Do you realize that many people who agree with me on these issues just across the board won't touch this topic because they don't want to deal with the defamatory nonsense I deal with on a daily basis?
1: Look, there are many white, non-Muslim authors that have written books about Islam. This is not about you in particular, and you don't have the kind of offensive language in here that you've said before in terms of we, we are at war with Islam or all kinds of, yes, chauvinistic viewpoints. But I mean, to back to my earlier point, I think that doing something like this is not difficult. And yes, it does make one money. In fact, I've been offered to do it myself. I'm, and I'm not afraid of being called anything. And I am critical of Islam. So, I mean, if, if you want to complain about having your feelings hurt, that's one thing. But l- let's have a, an actual discussion of the merits of what Reformation looks like. It,
0: it has nothing to do with having my feelings hurt. Again, I, I, I have to linger on this point because you're so far from reality here and you're so satisfied that you're in touch with it. So just listen to me for a second. Again, I'm talking about me, my career as a best-selling writer and scientist. Right, you have you've made certain assumptions here. And they're Sam, totally wrong. You made your wrong. career
1: by attacking religion, and that's totally fine. What were you doing before you wrote The End of Faith? Seriously, oh, you were you were
0: a PhD neuroscientist, right? You made a lot of here, money off of this. Here is a fact: focusing on Islam, right, to any degree, writing this book with Majid, having this comp, having you on my podcast now, okay alienates a significant percentage of my core audience. I mean, even the, the people who know I'm not a bigot, the people who see no more merit in defamatory salon articles than I do, right, don't want to hear me talk about Islam and Islamism because it's the most boring thing in the world. Now, I can tell you that there is almost no one in my core audience who wants me to spend any more time reiterating my concerns about Islam, and yet you seem to think that I am pandering to a huge audience for mercenary reasons. There's not a scintilla of truth to this charge. You just conjured it out of just an unfriendly act of imagination.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, look, if I look at your career and the things that you said before Sam Harris became waking up and meditation Sam Harris, it's all been attacks on on religion and that's fair but some of the things of course that you said about Islam before which garnered a lot of controversy rightly so and I hope we can talk about that your rhetoric um, those are things that you should expect to be uh, criticized for uh, and look, I don't want to talk about Islamism either. Either I've got a wide variety of interests and and creative pursuits that I'd rather be doing. So this is on me as well. And if your if your listeners are uh, are going to be alienated by an
0: opposing point of view, they're not going to be alienated by an opposing point of view. It's it's your assumption that Majid and I. I mean, it's, it's especially agree- egregious with Majid, but I I'm focusing on on my part for the moment. It's your assumption that I am pandering to an audience. That is hungry to hear me reiterate the problems with Islam, and that this is a lucrative thing to do. What, what sort of advance do you think Majid and I got for this book? I mean, you've probably heard that best-selling authors get six-figure or seven-figure advances for books. What do you think we got here? I'm not sure. You okay. tell me. There was no advance, right? Yeah. And now, how much? And can I ask you? I mean, I, look, I don't want to go
1: into into your finances. That's your personal business. But. Uh, But look, this is Islam and and the future of tolerance. You weren't talking about reformation of Islam five years ago or four years ago. You were just talking about attacking Islam. And this was originally supposed to be a blog post. If if, if, if I'm not mistaken, let me just just make one quick point. This was originally supposed to be a blog post. And this reads like a long email exchange between two people. I can't believe I spent $20 on it or whatever the price was. But, um, and Majid proposed that it be a book. And I think part of the reason for that, it's fair to assume, is that you would have made more money by publishing as a book, than you would have by publishing it freely on your blog. I paid people pay a premium to read something that should not be that that should not have a premium price attached to it. This is my point
0: here. Okay, well, no, that's not your point. A- a- again, you're, it's you're, one of my points. You're just you're not in touch with reality here. You're not in touch with the cost professionally, reputationally for touching this issue. You think that there are windfall profits for anyone who wants to say something negative about Islam. That's just simply not the case. So let me just give you another example here. When Ben Affleck called my comments about Islam racist on Bill Maher's show last year, okay, I was trying to launch a book about meditation and the nature of consciousness and a rational approach to spirituality. And that's a book that I actually had been paid a fair amount to write. okay and there was literally not a moment for the rest of my book tour where I could talk about my book. Okay, instead I had to deal with idiots who thought that Affleck made sense, right? And honestly, I've spent much of the last year doing that. Now, do you think, just consider this with fresh eyes for a moment, do you think, that when you're trying to launch a book about spirituality and meditation and a scientific understanding of consciousness, do you think that having to endlessly beat back charges of racism and bigotry is a good thing for marketing that book? Is that a moneymaker? <clears throat> Two points. The first is that there is a huge audience in the United States
1: for right-wing politics and right-wing views about Islam. This is not This is not new, right? I, I'm, I'm sure that you are aware of this and you encounter it all the time in the media and half of American democracy, at least one of the two major parties, has been caught up in this. The second point is that the reason why people were so critical of you and asking you all those questions is because on that appearance on Bill Maher's show, you called Islam the mother load of bad ideas. You threw out a number that, at the time, I think that uh, this is where some of your critics were unfair, where they said you pulled it out of out of thin air, and I, I don't think you. I give you more credit than that. But you called Islam the mother load of bad ideas, and the guy next to you, Bill Maher, who I also really like, I think he's a funny comedian, and you know I love watching his show. But he compared Islam to the fucking
0: mafia. That those are his words. Now, what do you? You expect people not to raise those questions when you're going around? The point I'm making is that there is a cost for this. This is not a self-serving, opportunistic, profitable thing to do. And most people who agree with me won't go near this topic because of all the pain it causes them. There is no upside to it. Now, yes, there are a few right-wing areas of publishing where a couple of people can sell books uh, pandering to what you might call, I think more legitimately call, a racist or xenophobic or or bigoted audience, but that is not the market for Majid and me. And I mean, it's just it's incredible that you're 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 not seeing this, okay. so I am someone who deals with many other topics whose audience wants him to deal with other topics. at this point, almost anything but Islam, right? I mean, just picture this, right? I mean, do you think that anyone pays a lot of money to hear me come? tell their students or employees that Islam is a terrible religion?
1: No, I mean look, I don't, I'm not sure what your sources of income are and who, you're, who who pays you and who doesn't pay you, but I'm certain that if tomorrow or in sometime in 2016 you were, you were to say expand the part of the end of faith dedicated to Islam and, and write out the most withering critique of Islam that you could possibly write, I'm sure that would sell very, very well, especially in the United States, especially in Europe, where people are getting very antsy about Islam. You, I mean, look, if you think that criticizing Islam and doing it when very heated rhetoric doesn't sell well, then honestly, dude, you're deluded, man. Like, it, it sells extremely well. You, you get platforms. You can go on the media. You can market your books, and you get more
0: followers and more readers, and people want to hear that. You're wrong about this, okay? You're wrong about this. I, I have five New York Times bestsellers under my belt now. Okay? The first
1: one being The End of Faith, The okay. Criticism of Religion, which yeah. started it
0: all. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But there's much more to the book than that. And it is not focused on Islam. And it was the first book in a wave of, of quote, new atheist books that started this publishing trend. You couldn't publish the same book today and hope to get lots of readers. And my book with Manjid It was never expected to be a New York Times bestseller, hasn't been a New York Times bestseller, was not written because we thought this was a great angle to make a lot of money. It was written to communicate specific ideas, which I hope we will get into, and it was written as an example of a conversation that succeeded, right? Majid and I started out far apart when we first met, and we converged in a very happy collaboration. And... We're putting it out there as an example of how a conversation on this topic could and we think should start. Now, the fact that you don't understand the reputational costs to this, the fact that you don't understand how much damage has been done to our public conversation on this topic by articles like the one you just wrote, right, and by periodicals like Salon that title them the way they title them, It's flabbergasting to me, and I'll draw the the picture even wider for you here, because you you really just, you do not understand the implications of this. I mean, do you think that when it comes time to get your kids into elementary school, okay, after handing in an application, right, do, do you think that having to warn the director of admissions that a Google search on daddy might just turn up charges of racism and bigotry that aren't true? right i didn't call you a bigot okay. once so, again chauvinist is in the title of the article right yeah. i i'm just and saying if, that the, I, uh, I hope they would move past the title okay. which okay. is what an informed reader is supposed to do but you're you're delip- well well they don't but first of all you're deliberately missing the point here the, the reality is is that to deal with this topic Okay, especially as a white guy, but even Majid doesn't escape charges of bigotry and even racism. Even Ayon Hersi Ali doesn't escape charges of bigotry Majid, and Majid, racism. I mean, Sam, the, the reason that, okay, you finish your point. Then I'll the, 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 the point is that to broach this topic is to guarantee a whirlwind of unjustified charges of bigotry, chauvinism, racism, xenophobia directed at you, and an endless trail of this online. And this is something that self-respecting public intellectuals, public intellectuals who value their time and their sanity, are avoiding at almost any cost. Okay, I know these people. They're my colleagues. And the fact that you not only don't see this, just see it as just pure upside. For anyone who wants to defame Islam, they're just going to get a book deal, they're going to get rich, they're going to get fetid in chauvinistic circles, and it's just going to be, you know, a gravy train of bigotry that they can ride for the end of their days. That is insanity.
1: There there are always costs to to entering the marketplace of ideas regardless of what those ideas are and there are of course benefits as well and it's in my estimation the benefits in this case of attacking Islam and attacking Muslims there are greater than the cost and there should be criticism and there should be withering criticism of people like yourself and of Ayan Hirsi Ali, who basically call for war against Islam. Let's let's boil this down because you're not an impartial arbiter or peddler, peddler of sophisticated arguments. You have said some very chauvinistic things and you have rightly been criticized for them. Now, no one should be attacking you personally, no one should be threatening you, no one certainly should not be threatening your livelihood or your life. But people should have the right and the responsibility and, I think, the obligation to offer withering rebuttals to, to, to that kind of rhetoric. When someone says that it is time we admitted that we are not at war with terrorism, we are at war, war with Islam, that deserves extreme scrutiny because it is an extreme statement. Okay. Do, do you I, disagree? Look, if, if if I came out, let me reverse this quickly, let me reverse this quickly, right? I think Israel has a right to exist and I think that its occupation in the West Bank is illegal and ultimately there's going to be a two-state solution. Now, as a brown-skinned Muslim-named person, I am aware that if I came out and said... You know, we are
0: at war with Judaism, or with the Jewish people, Omer. or with Zionism. What do you think the response would be? I, I, I just don't understand. I don't understand how you're you're missing this point. Okay, so we can talk about all of that. All right, I am still stuck on this get-rich-quick scheme, this attribution of motive, this picture you have of. Everything, everything in the marketplace. Okay, how much place money of did ideas? you make off the book? How much money did you make off the book? I mean, since s- since you claim
1: that all, there's only okay. costs associated with targeting Islam. Okay.
0: What's it? What's interesting? Okay. So here, the, here's a nice question. How many right? Twitter followers have you gotten since? Now, these are all things that accumulate on your platform. Okay. N- 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 nice question. So since we didn't get an advance for the book, right? Then it's all about royalties now. We should it should just be we I should be very concerned about book sales. How many times do you think I've checked with the publisher? to see how many books we've sold. I, I, I don't know, Sam. I don't well, know. You, you. You, that's right. You don't know. Zero. Zero is, is the number you're looking for there. So, so, so you made zero dollars off of this. No, the I'm, no I'm sure we've sold some books. I have no yeah. idea how many we've so, sold. So and this I, was and a and blog I... post that, was, that turned into a
1: book. So oh, you there. went from zero dollars to X. That's greater than zero, right? So you've made money off of this. And
0: look, to me, that's a secondary point, but you want to focus no, on it. No, the point is... Your attribution of a sinister, mercenary, opportunistic, cynical motive to something that is a pure effort to have a publicly valuable conversation, that is what I'm focusing on. I mean, mean, Omer, honestly, your reluctance to concede this point, okay, your reluctance to concede that you actually had no information about publishing here or about our motives or about how much money we were going to make that you were just saying something that sounded right to you, that you wanted to believe is true, but now actually you, want to you give have you have information. All, you have just
1: admitted that you made money off of this, number one. Number two, it was originally supposed to be a blog post. And number three you know the, the new atheist books the god delusion god is not great end of end of faith of course as you mentioned would not be published today they've already been published but would you deny that project islamic reformation books on demanding reformation are not in vogue now that articles calling for reformation don't go viral every two days would you deny this that no. there, there's a great market and a great readership and a great listenership for the, for this these kinds yes. of ideas, yes, yes. okay, so it's I, I, okay. Lucrative.
0: no, 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 I would no, I would deny it. It is the least lucrative and most costly thing I could be doing, right? And I'm informing you about this. I I don't expect you to know this, but what I'm saying is true. And your reluctance to step back at all from your get rich quick scheme claim says a lot about you, All right. I, I mean, th- this is you're getting your jd at yale all right i mean what could you possibly hope to do as a lawyer if you're showing this little concern not only for the truth but for the perception of your commitment to the truth i mean yeah. so, so, so well, I
1: mean, look my 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 commitment to the truth is completely independent from and and i think should not factor in financial profit of any kind Right. I think it's a corrupting motive. Number one, and number two, as an attorney and someone who is Jesus actually, Omer, you're, you're, someone who is actually interested in in reforming many communities and inducing in cultural liberalism, I want to work with these communities rather than which is apparently what Majid wants to do. And i here, here here's something I'll tell you that this book is going to influence and change precisely
0: very few opinions in in the Muslim
1: world. Again, and
0: you're you're changing the subject, Omer. I'm uh, the truth. I'm talking about here is. You made a claim about our motives that is demonstrably false. Okay, I've given you several reasons why you should... You re- just admitted that you've made money off of it. We have sold some books. But yes, from but a blog post. Originally, I thought we could do a blog post. It became such a substantial conversation, and we were, it was taking so much of our time, and we wanted to do it right, and we wanted to spend more time doing it, that it justified the further effort to make it a book, right? So then we wrote a book together. And it was a great collaboration that many, many people have found valuable. We haven't even gotten into the substance of of the book yet because I'm trying to get you to concede that the information that you thought you had about our motives and about the reality of publishing and about the lack of security concerns that people like Majid and I have, right, all of that was delusional. Okay. And I've given you several reasons to recognize that your charge is false. And I can assure... The assur- fourth point, the fourth L- listen point Listen on- to me, Omer, I... I- I'm going to quote you my own
1: words. What I exactly said was, soak up the inevitable publicity that awaits, and with it, your hard-earned cash. You have received plenty of publicity for this book, and you have already conceded that you have
0: received cash for this book. So I'm not sure what what, what your quibble is. Is is it with the facts? No, no. You describe it as a get-rich-quick scheme. I've heard you on another podcast confidently describing it as a get-rich-quick scheme. You describe- There's a lot of money to be made. You already said there's a big market for it. No, I did not. It is the worst possible market for me. And it comes with massive costs, security costs. It comes with reputational costs. It comes with the cost of having to try to take people's words out of your mouth. It comes with the cost of a conversation like this that many people could find excruciatingly boring. I mean, this is all bad news from my point of view. And yet I do it because I think it's an important topic to raise. And the reason why I'm having this conversation is not just to deal with the topic of Islam and Islamism and, and our disagreements here, but I, I'm trying to have hard conversations like this because I find the inability of people to get through hard conversations and to converge, right? The inability of people to have their minds changed in real time, the inability to, for people to admit that they were wrong in real time, that, I think, is actually the biggest social problem we have. It's much bigger than the problem of Islam or religion. It just no, racism is the biggest social problem we have, but maybe this is a close second. I would seriously disagree with you there. But the point is, is that two people have to be able to disagree and find some way of talking about that disagreement in a way that's productive. And even on this point, right, where I have all the information, right, where I know about the economics of publishing, where I know what I get paid and when I get paid and when I don't, when I know about the reputational costs and the security costs, and you know none of these things, you still won't back I've seen off books, an inch. <laughs> I, yeah, look,
1: I've seen the books that have come out according to what I call... Project Islamic Reformation, both yours and Majid's, as well as and Hirsi Ali's. I, I recognize that there is a market for it because I could very easily enter this market and make money off of this kind of project. And you've already admitted that you made money off of this. And so look, to me, this is a secondary point. But if you cannot concede the fact or admit that there is money to be made and readers to be had by criticizing and denouncing Islam or calling for an Islamic Reformation, then I don't think we live in the same world. I
0: mean, it's so clearly... My, it, my it, point, Omer, is not that there's no money to be made. My point is that this is the least good way for me to attempt to make money. And there, Majid could make much more money doing something else. Ayan Hirsi Ali could make much more money doing something else. We'll, we'll get to those because later in your article, you make charges against them that I want to address. But here, we're we're still on the first paragraph here, right? This is the problem, all right? I've given you several reasons to recognize that this charge that we're involved in a get-rich-quick scheme is false. And I can assure you that our listeners will recognize it to be false. And your tenaciously holding to it past the point where its falsity is obvious to everyone makes you look like an asshole. Yeah. Okay. I, look,
1: I've already we've already established that there is a market for this and a readership for this, and that it is it is a trend. You know what you should have done then. If you don't want to create a perception of trying to make money, if you and Majid don't go and do a scholarly, serious study of Islam and what needs to be done, rather than this, rather than a hundred and twenty eight page pamphlet which okay. is what, this, what, well, what and this creates the perception well, let, let, of a financial interest which n- is just as bad as having a financial
0: no, interest. No, no, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you about why the book is short. Why the book is short is because people love short books now. And the reason why there aren't more of them, and again, l- let me just educate you. And Please
1: do not speak to me in no, such domineering tones. No. Okay, I do not need to be educated. I'm an, an educated individual. Th-
0: this is something you can't possibly know because everything you say suggests you don't know it. So let me just tell you, how, I mean, how many books have you published? Well, okay. soon to be my first. Okay, well, let me tell you a, a dirty little secret about why there aren't more short books in publishing. Okay. They're not more short books in publishing because publishers can't figure out how to make a lot of money publishing short books. But They want to publish a 300 or 400 page book and charge you $30 for it. This is the way the costs scale in publishing. And if you publish the 100 page version of a book that really doesn't have to be any longer because it's a very short argument and you would just be padding it to make it longer. And it's actually what people want to read because they can read it in a single sitting and they don't have to decide whether or not they can sacrifice that much time to the book. They can just sit down and read it. Publishing has not solved the problem of how to, to, how to publish those books. And contrary to what you assume, this is a money-losing move. From a publishing point of view, to publish a short book and sell it for $17 or $18 is much worse from a publishing point of view than selling a big $30 book. And that's why more people don't do it. And when Manjit and I write a short book because we think it should be a short book that we want people to absorb in a single sitting, we are pushing against the merely mercenary, merely cynical, merely profit seeking attitudes in publishing contrary to what you assume let me just ask you a question then do you think that you know writing a book about islam
1: which encompasses quarter of the world's population as you know and over a billion people as you also know and the subjects of tolerance and the future do you think do you not think that merits a deeper
0: and longer study uh, it merits a, a century of conversation and majid and i have abs- have made absolutely no pretense to delivering the last word on this subject. We're trying to deliver a starting point, a novel starting point, which we did. But the price you pay for writing a comprehensive, scholarly, endlessly footnoted book is that you lose the people who can't invest that much time and energy into reading that book. And that's totally understandable. There, there is a place for both sorts of books. And we tried to write the book that you could hand to your friend who's been worried about this topic, but hasn't spent any time thinking about it, and say, listen, just take an hour and read this, okay? And that was our goal, and it's the goal we've accomplished. But the, the problem is you are... That's
1: not the people you should be addressing, are they? Okay. You want to address Muslims, again, not wait, the person uh, who doesn't know anything about Islam. This is a separate topic.
0: All right, let's, let's, No, let's, it's the
1: same thing. We're no. talking about who's going to read your book and what's the project no. that you want to all, accomplish, no, all which I've, is
0: reform. All I've been talking about thus far is you're ascribing motives to us that are completely false. I and give you a,
1: conceded all the factual points about the market existing, about you
0: making no, money off of it. Points. This is a stupid little trick that you have to stop using because it makes you look terrible, all right? To falsely summarize what someone has conceded, is not only annoying, it is effective only with stupid audiences, right? It's gonna get you fucking nowhere, so just listen to me. I didn't concede that point. Sam, don't speak to me in those tones. You're becoming an incredibly frustrating person to talk to, and because you're wandering, endlessly wandering off the point, and you're pretending to be a mind reader. I mean, everyone on the left these days is pretending to be a mind reader. So you're in good company. But, but on, the the right effect, well,
1: on, on the right as well, who thinks who think Muslims are
0: bloodlusting, violent jihadists, all of them. Well, no, even the, 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 the worst people on the right for, with whom I have no connection aren't saying that. But I'm certainly not saying that. No one is saying they're all jihadists and no one is saying they're all bloodlusting.
1: Just, well, I mean, you uh, did uh, say the Muslim world is utterly deranged by its religious tribalism, so that gets very close to it.
0: If you want to read all of that in context, then we can talk about what I actually said. Right. Again, again,
1: religious ecstasy, sectarian hatred, and a triumphalist expectation of world conquest uh, in a way other religions okay. do not. Is that Islam or again, is that ISIS, or are they the same thing?
0: Again, you're you're changing the subject. I hope to get into those subjects. I can only aspire to get into those subjects with you, but you're digging in here, this should be the easiest point we discuss, right? The point where you really have no information, and I have all the information, right, in terms of what it's like to publish on this topic. But you have dug okay, in so question, deeply simple,
1: here. Okay, a simple question for you, Sam. Is there money to be made or is there not in publishing a criticism of Islam?
0: There, if you sell a single copy of your book on macrame, there is technically money to be made selling one book on macrame, fine. That is a point that has absolutely no relevance to our conversation. The point I was making, and I'll continue to make as it comes up here, if Majin and I were trying to get rich, if we were trying to make money in a way that was as painless as possible, and as lucrative as possible, we would not be doing what we're doing. We would be doing anything but what we're doing. Making money in the
1: intellectual sphere, in the publishing world,
0: yes, it does does involve criticizing or Criticizing Islam is did, one way to do it. It does not. But publishing on other topics does not involve these endless charges of bigotry and racism. It does not involve the security concerns you reap when you deal with this topic. I could write books about Mormonism and never look over my shoulder, never worry about security concerns, never worry about being attacked as a racist or a bigot, and make the same points about religion in general. This is a unique problem to Islam.
1: If I took all your words and we replace Islam with Mormonism, I'm sure that you would get some very strong rebukes from the Mormon community. At
0: nothing analogous to what happens with, with Islam. But let's let's continue. You, you, we, we literally yeah, just went okay. through one paragraph.
1: Yeah, okay. Let's continue. So we are at, uh, let me just turn the page here. The books. Okay, yes. The books that make up Project Islamic Reformation are not works of scholarship or even well-crafted popular texts. They are almost exclusively political pamphlets of a very personal nature that often begin as biography and end as self-help. Except the self in this case includes a quarter of the world's people and the help may or may not come at the end of a missile. Ayan Hirsi Ali, who deserves empathy for her personal ordeals but not her conclusions, released such a book earlier this year with neat Manichaean categories delineating good and bad Muslims as well as the expected checklist of proposed reforms. More tracks will certainly follow because publishers love a good reformist and the affluent Western audience that consumes these books loves having most of their pre-existing beliefs confirmed rather than challenged.
0: Okay, well... Let's talk so, about this. Okay. Again, well, so, so why you, you pay lip service to Ayan deserving some sympathy? Okay. But no, you,
1: no, 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 no. It's not. It's not. I, it's, I would no. never attack her personally. I think oh. that she went through a tremendous ordeal, and that people who do attack her personally for what she went through, or deny the the uh, immense ordeals that she went through, are, are lacking in moral empathy.
0: Okay. But you, you still cynically imply that her work as a critic of the of the very ideology that produced this misery for her is purely opportunistic and driven by a desire to make money. I mean, you you, you realize... I think you
1: you hit the nail on the head perfectly there. When you said that the ideology... That that uh, put her through this ordeal because you and on Hirsi Ali and other people, what you guys do is you you do not uh, distinguish between a, a particular political ideology which is fascistic and totalitarian and Wahhabist and Salafist and very violent and the doctrine and religion of Islam and that uh, is that's the major not true. criticism. I,
0: I, do, I do that across the board every time I raise the issue. That's just simply untrue. But really, okay, yes, so I talk is, about is, ideas. Is Islam right? the motherload of bad ideas, or is
1: Wahhabism the motherload of bad ideas? Is Islam? Does Islam? Mary religious ecstasy and sectarian hatred, or is Wahhabism marry religious no, it, ecstasy it, and sectarian? It, it is
0: at, well as is Islam a, as in, we is make...
1: especially belligerent in your words and inimical to the norms of civil discourse, or is Wahhabism and violent jihadism especially belligerent and inimical to the norms of w- c- civil discourse?
0: We'll get we will get into that, but as you know, the problem is bigger than Wahhabism. And the fact that you would circumscribe it just to Wahhabism is a real problem, right? So I, I, I want Wahhabism to get Wahhabism is the prime mover of it. I want to get into that. But I, I'm just now focused on Ayan. I want to move through this systematically because what should be interesting from your point of view as a writer and should be interesting, I hope, to our listeners is just how this piece of yours that you took the time to write, and that you think just makes the case clearly against us, communicates nothing to me but your misunderstanding of the situation. And that is a I mis- quote you and I quote her words. Omer. What in that
1: paragraph did you... D- 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 do I, get, I not it's, understand it's, you, you, your
0: tr- Your treatment of Ayan here. So you, so you say, yes, she's had this terrible experience, but again, she is just an opportunist who's out to make money in this Reform Islam program. And... Just consider her circumstance for a second. I mean, you realize how much easier her life would be if she were part of the herd that just refuses to engage these issues. I mean, you real, do you realize how talented she is? Do you realize that, that when a person starts out as an uneducated Somali girl who doesn't speak a word of Dutch and in a few short years gets a degree in political science and becomes a member of parliament and who, who speaks half a dozen languages at that point, you realize that there are other things she can do in life if she just wants to get ahead and make money beyond just pissing off a mob of religious maniacs, and and then having to suffer not only their threats, but just the, the condescending stupidity of critics who don't have a fraction of the courage she has, who haven't suffered any of the abuse she has, who haven't taken any of the risks she has, but who then decide that it is probably a good idea to make her situation even more dangerous by attacking her as a bigot. Okay, you want to talk about opportunism? The opportunism is on the side of the Islamist assholes at the Council of American-Islamic Relations, CARE, who try to get Ayan disinvited from speaking at universities and pretend that she, okay, one of the most persecuted public intellectuals in living memory, is the one infringing on people's civil rights?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, that's nonsense. And when she she was supposed to speak at Yale, and I think it was it was either canceled or there was some kerfuffle about that. And look, I'm a free speech fundamentalist, and I defended her right to speak as as Bill Maher, or anyone, um, because you know the marketplace of ideas should not have this kind of uh, estrangement. But look, you're, you're peddling a fa- a fallacy here because basically what you're you are saying is that because of her personal ordeals, we that that exonerates or excuses the words that she has spoken. Her Arguments. This is what I'm focusing on, the arguments that she has made. She said Islam must be defeated. She said that we are at war with Islam. She said that we should bomb the lands of Islam. To me, her personal story now is irrelevant. I'm focusing on exactly what she has said. And to me, that is a deranged, deluded conclusion. And that if you do not speak up against that, I think that, well, your morals and ethics should be questioned. If anyone else said it, you wouldn't say, oh, look at all these things that they've done. Look at their, look at the personal ordeals that they went through. Look at their CV. No, it's absolutely nonsense.
0: You attack the arguments. People are not attacking her arguments. First of all... you just conceded that the work of an organization like Care that tries to get her deplatformed, right? That goes after her rather than going after the theocrats who are hunting her. I'm
1: not. I'm not a representative of Care, Mr. Harris. No, I understand. am a writer,
0: and no, why go after Ayan and not go after the core problem here? Which I mean, you you limit it to Wahhabism, but why not go after? I have the... gone after Wahhabism, actually. Okay. But, and I but, think anyone who supports
1: that, including the Saudis who are now funding an institution at Yale, should be barred from doing so and should be criticized very loudly loudly, and roundly. But also, an obligation of a writer and an intellectual and someone in the public sphere is to stand up for minorities. The people who would be bombed under
0: Ayan Hirsi Ali's policy, the people who okay.
1: we were would, would at war with, do not, have a, voice does in this not
0: have a policy of bombing the Middle East. Ayan, now, Ayon's probably more hawkish than you are. I'm probably more hawkish than you are, but if Ayon's views have been treated to the misrepresentations that mine have, and I'm sure they have, I've, I, you know, I, I have I followed this reasonably closely. I have no confidence that you even know what her views are, and certainly you're not disposed to give a charitable reading of something in context or or something that that she might have said in an interview that didn't come out exactly right and that a further examination of her views in her books or in other interviews would give you a bigger picture of what she said. The editors
1: of Reason Magazine were were bewildered when she said this, and they asked her to clarify in the most charitable way that they could, and she still didn't. In fact, she doubled down. And recently, she's called for Benjamin Netanyahu to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I hope that's a position you disagree with. She's a great supporter of Sisi, who has launched a war not only on Islamists, remember, but on atheists as well, and killed more people than Morsi did, probably more than Mubarak has. And so this is a support, she's supporting right wing dictators in one case, a right wing extreme right wing chauvinistic politician in another case, and then calling for wars with Islam. I mean, at this point, the personal ordeal and, and her immense tra- tragedy is irrelevant to me. As much as I empathize with it, I'm focusing on her arguments, and you should too, instead of defending and giving her cover if you're a serious intellectual.
0: Listen, I do focus on all of these specific claims, and all of them are incredibly complex to get into. And no, 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 let's get them. Well, we will get into them, but the fact that we can't even get through the simplest of all possible disagreements, where information is very clear to put forward, right, doesn't give me much hope that we can deal with deeper issues here. Take for instance your claim here, and this again, I'm, this is why I want to move through your review systematically. You, you have this line about Manichean categories, right, delineating good and bad Muslims, okay. What are you saying here? I mean, are you are, are you doubting whether there are good and bad Muslims, or tolerant and intolerant strands of Islam? I, I I don't think you can be right. So no, no, no. What I'm saying
1: is that someone from the outside putting Muslims into a category of Mecca and Medina Muslims is ultimately unhelpful and counterproductive. It's not going to reach anyone. The people you want to convince are not going to listen to you. And in general, I think it's a Stalinist technique when people from the outside begin categorizing. She's not from the outside. She's from the inside.
0: She's an ex-Muslim, right? She has lived in the Muslim world as a Muslim, was driven out of the Muslim world by violent theocrats and lives every minute of her life under the shadow of their threats. She is in the Muslim world arguably more than you are. She's right? not per-
1: certainly not perceived to be, and she's not perceived to be an honest interlocutor okay. because of her very militaristic yes. views. Okay, but
0: that says a lot. Forget her militaristic views. She's not- No, a... they're central. They're not- But No, but she, they're not central to why she's not perceived as an honest interlocutor. She's not perceived as an honest interlocutor because she's an apostate. People are not trying to kill her because of her militaristic views. People are trying to kill her before she had any views because she was an apostate right you everything is backwards for you yeah cer- certain a uh, certain
1: fascist groups islamic fascist it's groups it's not just are, certain are, fascist are, groups are after her. the level are after
0: her. of support for the killing of apostates in the muslim world as you undoubtedly high. know is shockingly high. high and it's, it's not limited to wahhabism okay way
1: too high and look people are uh,
0: do you want to talk about apost- apostasy now or you want to talk no, about it No, it'll, it'll come up later, but, it, okay. but you can't just say way too high, way too high. You just tried to limit the problem to Wahhabism. You just tried to paint Ayan as being someone who has been marginalized for her hawkish views, right, which you still have not characterized accurately. Uh, I quoted you her words directly. That reason interview is a famous instance of someone misspeaking, not giving a full context for her I views. Mean like,
1: look, how do I respond to something like that? If you say something chauvinistic and militaristic, you misspeak. It's, a, it's an unfalsifiable It is
0: impossible. Position. No, it, it is falsifiable because she will not hide her views when you talk to her at length, right? She has written about these things. She's been interviewed again. I've interviewed her trying to put her, her comments in context. You could throw back at her what she said about Anders Breivik, right? That has been distorted and spun and used as a, a way of lying about her, her actual beliefs. This has been done to me endlessly. The Islam is a, is the motherload of bad ideas statement on Bill Maher's show. I have already said I misspoke there. I should have said it was a motherload of bad ideas. And I can talk to you for an hour about why I think I should have said that. But there are still people who want to hold me to... It is the mother load of bad ideas, as though there is no other uh, source of bad ideas on earth, right? You either want to understand where someone is coming from, or you don't. And No, no well, it's not that. It's that you should hold people accountable for their words. Yet You don't right? hold and them accountable you, for their misstatements that they then clarify. How is it,
1: how is it a misstatement? She, she, this entire interview, which I hope your, your readers and listeners read from 2007 in Reason magazine, she says that Islam must be defeated. Do you mean radical Islam? And she says, no, Islam... Period. Yes, I've that's said a, a, I, that's I, 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 a statement. I ha, okay, I have it said the same thing. a
0: hermeneutical interpretation here. It's very cl- no. It does because what is Islam? What does it mean to say Islam has to be defeated? Islam is a set of ideas. She's not calling for genocide. There, she's calling for defeating the ideas. I think Islam is a dangerous religion. I have made no secret of that. I have said things just like that. Islam has to be defeated. I'll say it now. Islam has to be defeated. Why? How is it that that kind of statement should not be perceived as... I I think all religion has to be defeated. All right? I'm an atheist.
1: Okay, but an idea is not merely defeated. You're talking about the people
0: who believe in this idea. I have written an article titled, Science Must Destroy Religion. Okay? So these are ideas that we can talk about. And it never will. I mean, on that point, it never will. Um, Listen, the the problem here is an unwillingness on your part to enter an open-ended conversation about ideas, about what your partner, your opponent in this case, thinks that is proceeding on the basis of a modicum of charity where you actually want to understand what the other person's view no, because is.
1: look, the game is rigged. There's a double standard here. If someone criticizes you or that we're attacking your motives or we're being uncharitable. But if you say militaristic, chauvinistic things, absolutely then you're not. Then no, you're no, 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 no. She it, misspoke. You misspoke. It's it's the same thing over
0: and over again. I rarely misspeak. Okay, I occasionally misspeak, but I rarely do. And I, I rarely, obviously, misswrite. But I am increasingly on my guard through cruel experience, I've been taught this, against people who are only pretending to want to have a conversation on this topic and are just trying to defame another person. Now, Ayan, you are talking about her as though she would execute a nuclear first strike on the Muslim world, right? Well, that's your position, right? That is what, a position that has been ascribed to me by utterly dishonest people. Right now, you—I hope you were joking.
1: No, I mean, uh, uh, there were certain preconditions that, of course, that you gave. You didn't say. Please correct me if I'm wrong. That we should have a nuclear first strike against any country, but if an Islamist regime came to power and had nuclear weapons, th- th- that's a possibility you would entertain. Is that is that a, a,
0: a clear understanding of your view? Well, certainly not the way it's situated in your brain. It's not. Again, th- this is something that will be obvious to our listeners. I mean, is—I is, mean, the fact that you think you're entering this conversation in a way that is intellectually honest and open to having your views challenged and, and responsive to evidence that you didn't have a moment ago, I mean, it's as pure an act of self-deception as I've witnessed in a long time. You are so defensive. There is nothing I could say to you about the reality of publishing or about my experience as an author or about the the opportunity cost, or the security Mm. cost, or anything else that only I in this conversation am in a position to talk about. There's nothing I could say to you that modified your view of my opportunism and get-rich-quickery even slightly. And now we're proceeding on to much more difficult ground, right? Now we're talking about Ayan, now we're going to talk about Islam and apostasy and I mean this is not how you have a conversation with another human being.
1: You you have this um you, you you repeat this mantra over and over again as if you are the arbiter of truth. I've quoted you your own words, you dismissed them. I've quoted you Ion's words, I didn't You dis- dismissed them. No, you no, dismissed I- them. You said it only okay, well you you were very condescending, let's just say. Um and you don't want to engage with, your, with with the text of your own words that I'm quoting back to you now.
0: Of course I will engage with it. And I can justify saying something like, Islam has to be defeated, right? Please yeah, do. As, as you notice. No, I, what do you mean by that? Islam has to uh, be defeated. Uh, oh, oh, no. let's, let's tease this out. Well, because I can say that, that I think religion has to be defeated. I think, yeah. I think. How belief- do you defeat Islam? you're asking a different question now. now you're asking how. You think well, it's yeah, a, you Islam think it's you, be, you, you well, think I, I it's an unrealistic. What
1: you mean by that statement? Otherwise, you're going to say
0: I'm misquoting you. I think believing in revelation is intrinsically dangerous. I think that believing that one of your books was dictated by the creator of the universe is a stupid, divisive, dangerous thing to do. I yeah, think it goes I think I think it goes nowhere worth going. I think the harms produced by this attitude are obvious undeniable and among the worst harms that humanity has ever suffered. And we have to get out of this business of believing in, in revelation. Now, how do you do that? As you rightly observe, I have spent a lot of time focused on that problem. It's not exclusively what I focus on. And, and less and less do I want to focus on it because I, I am just repeating myself. I've said more or less everything I think on that topic. So it's both boring for me and boring for my listeners. But I I think, yes, we have to get out of the religion business. We have to defeat religion. I can say it in a nice way, and I can say it in a provocative way, but I can certainly defend the claim, and I've said it every which way. Now, I also have justified, ad nauseum, a focus on specific religions on specific points where they present specific liabilities. I think that individual religions are not interchangeable. They have very different theologies, they have different ideas, they make different behavioral and logical uh, commitments. Can I just
1: respond to what you said before? Because,
0: yeah, yeah, okay, so you look, seeing that the Quran has
1: problematic and violent verses, that is a statement of fact, okay? Anyone who disagrees with you there is lying but saying that we are at war with islam saying that the central message of the quran is jihad these are value judgments and in my mind in, in my opinion in my estimation they're very ill-informed ones and they're ultimately going to be lead to counterproductive strategies and this for me this boils down to what do you think islam is is it just the, is it just the text the the jihadist verses in the quran or is it more capacious than that Earlier I mentioned scholarly works, serious scholarly works on Islam. I'll give you the name of one that just came out from a very serious scholar, PhD in history who died recently. He was uh, fluent in eight languages, traveled throughout the Middle East. His name was Shahab Ahmed, and he wrote a book called What is Islam? And his definition of Islam was the capacious lived tradition of of Muslims throughout history and how, how it actually exists today. So that includes, for example poetry. That includes wine. I hope that you would not want to defeat either wine or poetry. It includes music and includes a whole host of legal and political and spiritual um, motivations that are inherent in the lived tradition. It's not just about jihad. So When you say Islam must be defeated as a kind of blanket statement, it that to me is ultimately a very, very dangerous um, and ill-conceived one because you're not getting at A, the heart of the matter, which is a political ideology that I refer to as Wahhabism and is a state ideology of our ally, Saudi Arabia, that propagates this and that did not exist before a specific period in history, did not exist. And number two, I think you denigrate or deny or reduce the actual tradition that people live in to this kind of slogan of jihad that the extremists are parroting. And so we miss the nuances when we use these kind of blanket statements.
0: Okay, the pause you hear from me is I'm trying to figure out how to proceed here because you know given how we have foundered on very simple points, I'm reluctant to just set sail on a rougher part of the the sea here. So briefly, Islam is is many things, and on one level you can define it as Islam is the way 1.6 billion Muslims live it. It's it's whatever they think it is, and now we know a fair amount about. The uh, moral and political and theological attitudes of Muslims, based on a lot of polls, and most of those polls are frankly terrifying, both in the Muslim world and in and most of those it, polls are bullshit too. No, oh, this, was, this, uh, I, don't, I don't know how you would know that if you ask fifty thousand okay. people a question and they give you an answer. I'll tell you why. I'll I don't know you where because, you stand, but but no, but the reason. No, no, uh, no, no, no let but, me tell you why uh, the polls. Uh, but can but be let bullshit. me just let me just finish okay. this point. I, I don't I don't think we should spend a lot of time right here right now. The problem for me about revelation. And this is this is why I focus on the text is that the the texts are a, essentially a software program for rebooting a worldview. I mean, so we could forget about Islam for a thousand years and someone could discover the full text of the tradition, the Quran and the hadith and the biography of Muhammad in a cave somewhere, and read it and accept its Most straightforward, most literalistic claims. I mean, just to give a very plausible literal reading of what they have there, and essentially reboot Islam for themselves. And it would be it would be a particular kind of Islam. It would be an Islam that would would not at all be influenced by anything else surrounding them, because all of that would have been lost. There'd be no architecture. There'd be no art. There'd be no tradition. There'd be no food. But they would have the texts, and if they understood the texts in a plausible way, my problem is that what they would get is something very much like Wahhabism and a lot less like Rumi, okay? And that's a problem. A plausible reading of the text, I'm not saying it's the only reading, and again, Majid and I get into this in in real detail, but a plausible reading gets you something totalitarian, intolerant, a rather unlucky circumstance for women. Contradictory as well. Right, schizophrenic, yeah, you yeah, could say intellectually yeah, yeah, no, schizophrenic. No, but so. not not as contradictory as one would hope. It's not as contradictory as Christianity or, or Judaism, and that's a there's, problem. There's no compulsion in religion and the sword yes, verses. But yes, you kill okay, person. But if you if you have a doctrine of abrogation that makes sense of that, then you're in a smooth sailing. Yeah, of course, many people. Don't adhere to that. What you're
1: basically parroting here is the Salafist version of Islam, which is a particular interpretation that comes out of the Arabian Peninsula in the 17th, 18th century and is led by a totalitarian radical who's not trained in Islamic tradition at all. And that and and the West and the Ottoman Empire tried to put it down until, until it grew. So look, th- this is a specific political interpretation. If I give you a text, Sam, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, if I give you a text and I tell you you can interpret this however you want, you're going to interpret it according to your political it, ideology. No, the, no, that, that, no. This, but there, this, there this, are, this are more
0: just, and less plausible interpretations of any text. And it, what it is, what is problematic... And who says that the 99% of the Muslims who interpret it and live peacefully is less It's is not less because, plausible. It, because it is not 99% who have peaceful attitudes that are commensurate with the values of a, of a open civil society. That's simply untrue. Nine, How many people are in ISIS? 20,000 n- maybe? 99% of Muslims are supportive of Ayan's right to apostatize. 99% of Muslims are supportive of the rights of cartoonists to cartoon anything they want about Islam. Are you telling me you believe that?
1: So, on the point of free speech, that's actually more of a cultural issue than it is of a theological issue. And I hope we can make that distinction. There's nothing in the Quran that says, nothing in the text or the tradition, the history even, that says that you cannot depict the Prophet. In fact, in Shia Islam and throughout Islamic history, there were depictions. You're, you're, of, but uh, no, one, of the no, no one is I'm limited. Clarifying to, for you. Okay. I'm, I'm clarifying but this you, point but, for you. But, no, but you're also
0: making a tendentious, illegitimate move. You're limiting it to a depiction of the Prophet. That's not the free speech issue. Both. The Free speech issue is I should be able to say that Islam sucks, and I should be able to say that as a Muslim, I should be able to apostasize. That is free speech. Yeah, yeah. And look, you can you can do that in in, in the West. And, and you I can know, get and you can get your head cut off in any Muslim society on earth, and many Muslims, many, many Muslims, in in many cases majorities, support that. A fundamental principle
1: of every human being in terms of their dignity is to have whatever private theological views that they want. Now, whether that translates into a public uh, political view is another matter. Egyptians, say 86% of them, think that apostates should be killed. Now, A, they never if they think this is the word of God, apparently, according to you. They think it's the word of God. They don't go out and they don't kill ex-Muslims. They're friends with them. You can go to Egypt and go to Cairo and you see that. They had the opportunity to vote and put in apostasy into their, into their legal code. They didn't do it. They didn't do it in Pakistan either, where there was an election. Haven't done it in Iran either so people can have all kinds of dangerous diluted backwards views and and, and you you're right you have the right to that as many evangelicals in in America do but to translate that into a political program is something that's very different and i think that we should be mindful of that distinction rather than saying that oh these people over here are so backwards that 99% of them or 80% of them ha- think that apostates should be killed And that's the end of the story right there.
0: No, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I I want to bring that uh, to light. Again, this is a distinction without a difference. When you have a lynch mob that's willing to enforce their religious attitudes, whether or not there's a a formal law against blasphemy on the books, they're willing to kill blasphemers or kill someone who is merely rumored to have burned a Quran or kill someone who has apostatized or hunt them to the ends of the earth. In other societies, right, suborn their murder with fatwas that are now have global reach, that is a problem that is bigger than the statutes that were written or not written in any society. I mean, 5% it, percent of Saudi citizens are convinced atheists and...
1: More than that, about 15%, or probably and, about, and 6 million, and, about, 6 million, about 6 million, around 20%, are not religious people. Are there lynch mobs Omer, against them? Yes, are there, are yes, they being beheaded?
0: Yes, Omer, I hear from these people. They're in hiding. They can't even tell their parents they have doubts about God for fear of being murdered by their own families. Yeah, and
1: many of them are in open. Many of them are open. You go to the cafes of Cairo, you go to Riyadh, you go to Amman, you meet openly um, critical people, you meet openly agnostic and atheistic people. So, so it's not as simple, it's not as simple, yes, Sam, okay, so, saying that so, 86% of Egyptians think apostates should be killed. Therefore, all those 86% are all backwards people. So, so If we did the same thing to the United States, we'd think that 85... Oh, please. 85,
0: Omer, please. I, I, you're telling me that, that Raif Badawi is one of the 5% of Saudi atheists who's just free to be an atheist? Stood up for him
1: many times when other people on on the left did not and I don't deny that that there needs to be a liberal and constitutional revolution in the middle east and south asia in fact this is the i want to bring this back to the broader point that i'm making is that your strategy and Ayyan's strategy of telling Muslims we have to excise verses, let's just say even if it's the most intellectually honest position that you that anyone could have, let's assume that. Strategically and politically it's never going to happen because people believe in the Quran and in their tradition and they're not going to take a razor to their holy books. What I want to see happen is a liberal and democratic and constitutional revolution that happens across the Middle East and South Asia where we support the left, the progressive opposition that exists in every country, the democratic opposition that exists in every country. But because of U.S. foreign policy and because of domestic tyrants and because of religious tyrants, the religious right, that hasn't been allowed to emerge. And when that opposition comes in, it's going the cultural change they'll implement will be permanent. And so
0: those, that is basically my view on this. How do you engender those liberal attitudes yeah. when a majority of people believe as is written in the books, whether you're talking about the Quran or you're talking about the Hadith or you're talking about the biography of Muhammad, they believe things like women are essentially the property of the men in their lives or at the very least second-class citizens or they believe things like apostates should be put to death or they believe things like infidels and polytheists are forever your enemy, right? You you have attitudes that can be lifted directly out of the texts, based on not only a plausible reading, I would say on certain of these points, the most plausible reading, even on certain of these points, the only plausible reading. And you are saying that these texts are forever to be held sacred. One can never disavow any line in them.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, look, they're not, here's the thing, if you were to present this to a actual believing, you know, liberal Muslim, who believed every word of it, what they would basically do, doesn't matter what, and I've engaged in this exercise many times, and probably ended up as frustrated as you have, what they would basically do is that, A, they would contextualize it to the point, and then they would contextualize it first, and then they would neutralize the view, Right? So they would say, for example, that apostasy, leaving Islam in the ninth century when the Quran was revealed, would amount to high treason because the Islamic community was very small. Now, that doesn't amount to high treason anymore, so Muslims should be free to leave and, to, of course, to, to enter the faith. I think the second thing that, that they would do is to highlight the importance of interpretation. The fact that 86% of Egyptians are not going out and killing Apostates, who are in many cases their friends, signifies to me that mentally, they've already excised those verses, they've already neutralized those verses, they're focusing on the part of the Quran, the tradition, broadly speaking, the Rumi and the poetry and the music, and the spirituality, which I know that you are a fan of, at least in some contexts, they're focusing on those elements. Of the religion, okay. I think we should be mindful of that. So, for and and look, the polls are contradictory as well. Like across the board, you see, you know, ninety-seven percent of South Asians and eighty-five percent of Middle Eastern Easterners say religious freedom is a good thing. A higher number of Palestinians that, believe in evolution yeah, yeah, than, the, the, than than okay. evangelical
0: Protestants do. So, let's st- no, stop with that first poll result. That's not actually the paradox you make it out to be. People can answer that question saying that religious freedom is a good thing. Purely as it applies to me, I want to be free to practice my Salafi Islam, right? Religious freedom is a good thing, okay? Should apostates be killed? Oh, of course. Uh, We have to kill them, right? There is no paradox there if you understand religious freedom to be your own religious freedom.
1: So let's break this down logically. So like these Salafis, who I hope you appreciate are not the majority of in these countries. Yeah. So, these Salafis believe that the Quran is the literal interpretation of God. Their reading of the Quran is the most plausible. They think that if you do not, if they do not implement God's will, that they will be sinners. So, why don't they go and do it?
0: Well, oh, okay. it's is, is, is it a fear of secular law. Just to back up, uh, let me concede a point you made, which I have made many times before. Perhaps this would surprise you, but ah, we but have but agreement. There is some distance between. What people profess they believe and what they actually believe, or what the or 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 people believe, hold these beliefs to greater or, or lesser extents, and you know they're the things they think are probably true, and then they th- then they're the things they will bet their life on, the things that, that are just absolutely going to rule their behavior and emotion whenever that belief becomes relevant. So to have you know 86 percent of Egyptians say that apostates should be killed, that doesn't tell you. That eighty-six percent of Egyptians would kill Ayon with their own hands, right? But nor would they vote for oh, someone who had okay. that as their platform. Okay, so yes. Yeah, which, so which is the important part. But what percentage would? What percentage would vote? Well, for I don't know for that in the Egyptian platform?
1: election. In the Egyptian elections, forty-eight percent, forty-nine percent voted for. Voted for the liberal and the party, Mohamed yeah. Morsi's party, the Freedom and Justice Party, had 50 years of political organization and development, and they they still
0: could only muster 53 percent. I'm agreeing with you that these numbers come down when you actually ask people to take concrete steps. Yes, yeah, so, so the numbers are bullshit, Sam. Every one of these numbers matters. It's just because the, the people who will say apostates should be killed are on the wrong side of this free speech issue. They're doing nothing good for free speech, and what they're doing is quite harmful. And many of these people, maybe not 86% in the case of Egypt, but some intolerable percentage would vote the wrong way and would, would, would just stand by and watch a mob kill a so-called apostate. Is everyone in the mob who isn't helping someone who's about to be lynched Is everyone in the mob culpable? Equally culpable? Well, no, not equally. They're the people who are actually doing the lynching. Then they're the people who are just standing there with their cell phones, right? But all of these people are part of a problem, okay? And yes, there are gradations of belief. There's gradations of support for terrorism. There's gradations of commitment to jihad. This was the concentric circle image that I talk about in the book and that I tried to talk about on Bill Maher's show. There are the people at the absolute center of the bullseye who, yes, they are they are strapping on the C four now because they're going to do an operation today. Let's say a Sunni who wants to blow up a Shia mosque, right? That is a the full commitment. And, right? and where
1: is the theological, uh, where is the theological prerequisite or injunction for that?
0: The whole phenomenon of takfirism and the whole phenomenon of, of, of judging other people to be apostates or in, or infidels or, or right, polytheists, right. whether takfir- or not they
1: fourteen hundred years. Was not practiced, and when it was practiced, it was by a very highly institutionalized and legalized profession of, of scholars. The, the independent takfiri okay. fatwas only begin in the 18th century and are perfected by bin Laden. Again, specific l- l- political l- ideologies, specific l- 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 political l- l- circumstances, l- 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 and specific political l- l- actors. We can
0: get it, we can get into history if we ever get there, but the the issue is is that today, every one of these degrees of commitment to attitudes and behaviors that are totally hostile to everything we care about in in an open civil society. There are degrees of commitment to those noxious and divisive and dangerous beliefs and behaviors that one can draw directly out of Scripture. And yes, undoubtedly, there are Muslims who want to live in open, creative, peaceful societies who do their best to ignore the least convenient passages in Scripture, just as Jews do, just as Christians do. And I have always acknowledged the the presence of these people. And in fact, the extreme version is I hear from the the, the ex-Muslims or the Muslim freethinkers or the, the Muslim atheists who are in hiding trying to figure out how to better their lives and their societies in a context where to speak too plainly about the problem of Scripture Or the problem of believing that the Quran is the the eternal and perfect word of God is to apply, if not a death sentence to yourself, just a life deranging contest against the religious maniacs in your society. I think you denigrate those people, though, when you say
1: they don't take their religion seriously. They take the jihad verses seriously, but they contextualize them within this, the history of Islam. And they don't think that any two-cent preacher with an ugly beard on their face can just de- denounce another Muslim as takfir, or can blow up a suicide vest uh, when, when children are around. The the, the 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 hardcore Salafis and Wahhabis and ISIS folks, they need to be opposed. You can use the Quranic tradition, the Quran, the Quran itself, the Islamic tradition, Islamic precedent to to oppose them and there are reformers in these communities who have been doing that because they're the primary victims of them, right? So it's not just like, oh, there are these jihad verses over here and this licenses, you know, extreme killing of civilians at any time or terrorism at all times. I mean, Bernard Lewis, for example, who I think we would agree is a great historian, he said himself in in his books on Islam that there's nothing in the Islamic text or Islamic history that would justify the kind of suicidal terrorism that we've seen in modern times. The people who are opposing, who are the most opposed on the front lines against the jihadists and the violent Salafis are the people who are using the text and the traditions and the laws and the precedent to oppose them to their face. Okay, well, the
0: people it, who can be convinced anyways. It's interesting that you bring up Lewis because he's often disparaged as a, as a neocon shill by Islamists and and Muslim I think, he's a, I think okay. he's a very good historian. I think he's a very good historian. Okay, but so, so many of your fellow Muslims, I would say most, hate the guy, right? Much of well, my, many on the left in general d- okay. dislike yeah, him as but, an Orientalist. But, so, so, much of my view about Islam and the and the relevant history here has been informed by Lewis. But to, just to back up for a second, what do you think Majid is doing or attempting to do in reforming Islam? You you give him absolutely no credit for his efforts here. He's precisely engaged in this kind of theological effort to contextualize, to rebut, to find some way forward theologically for even the most devout Muslims. Do you think Uh, that's new, Sam? It's not new, but it is rare. And the proof of its novelty to you should be just how reliably someone like Majid is disparaged by his fellow Muslims. And it's not only Majid. It's anyone else who's doing similar work gets disparaged as an apostate as a sellout, as an Uncle Tom, as a porch monkey. I never use those words. Again, you're... Well, no, but you're you're totally disparaging him and his whole project, and yet you are essentially articulating the same project. That You're saying this should be done, and I can show you how Majid is attempting to do just that, and yet you're saying Majid has no credibility, he's an opportunist, this is completely uh, defamatory of the tradition. And our collaboration together is just the height of arrogance and selfishness and intellectual waywardness. And yet yeah, the so stuff the he reason- spells out in the book is very much sure. along the lines of what you just described. Yeah, sure. So,
1: so um, perceptions are very important. And historically, left-wingers and progressives and reformists who were either bankrolled or by or associated with right-wingers, or what we would today call neoconservatives, have, ha- have basically been, been co-opted, and it creates a perception okay. uh, of, well, of, of so for that. example, if Martin Luther King was supported by the John Birch Society, would his values and his views <clears> and his work still contain the same merit? Maybe, but it would, he would lose a lot of support within the African American community, I guarantee you that.
0: Okay, well, that so, those so- Those charges that you've made in this article about Majid and, and Quilliam, insofar as I understand them, are false. And so let's just get to those. Let's just get back to the text and and keep plodding along.
1: Okay, and just, I want to, can I make one point quickly about reform not being new? In 2004, the King of Jordan held a giant conference in in Amman, invited all of the major Sunni scholars to give a fatwa, and they had a major conference there, Shia scholars, Sunni scholars, people who are very widely followed. You have huge platforms in the Middle East, and they gave a fatwa together saying that no ordinary Muslim could pronounce takfir on another. It was a message of peace, known as the Amman message, and I look and I request that your followers look it up. So this is not new. 126 scholars condemned ISIS's views on slavery just last year, in 2014, point by point, right? Amina Wadud in 2005 led the first publicly mixed gender prayer. You know, Layla Baktiar. Produced the first feminist interpretation of the Quran. This is an ongoing process, Sam. And so, when you when you enter the debate, and Majid claims, or at least has this aura about him, as him being the first reformer, it alienates a lot of people on the ground. And you speak to those people, and you you know what the first thing you're going to hear is that he doesn't have standing in the legal sense, and in the political and moral sense in those communities.
0: Well, let's get to that because you make that charge below. I just want again, I want to keep moving through yeah, systematically. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So, you're, so where where were we? Uh, it is in the context.
1: Sure, it is in the context of Project Islamic Reformation that the atheist neuroscientist Sam Harris and the redeemed radical Majid Nawaz have published their latest book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, put out by no less a publishing house than Harvard University Press. The book is structured as a conversation between Harris and Nawaz, who go back and forth over issues ranging from polling data suggesting Muslims support corporal punishment to the Islamic justifications for jihad. Compressed into its 128 pages is the entire Reformation project, except that the book's contents are as thin as its subject is grand. For a work whose title includes the words Islam and Future of Tolerance, the Harris Nawaz pamphlet consistently veers from the ahistorical into the nonsensical and back again, almost always at Harris's urging.
0: Okay, well, well, this is... Let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, this is still a little more throat-clearing from you, but I want to respond to the charge that um, what I've said in the book is either historically inaccurate or nonsensical. Uh, Now, our our differing readings of history, I think, are going to be difficult to reconcile here, but uh, given how difficult everything has been thus far. But that, I think, doesn't actually matter much because, as I told Majid in the book, nothing in my account turns on the history. I, mean, I you know, In my view, we have to deal with the world as we find it. I mean, wh- whatever the origins of uh, or the significance of something like the Crusades, for instance, that doesn't change the fact that we have to deal with groups like ISIS today and the attraction that their ideology holds for millions of Muslims. So you know, wh- whatever happened a thousand years ago has no bearing, in my view, on the ethical or political legitimacy of violent jihadism today.
1: Look, mm-hmm. the Quran was the same as it was a thousand years ago, and there was music and civilization and poetry and peace at that point, and there's well, terrorism today, which uh, turns, l- which means l- l- it's not l- textual, l- Let it's me it's just political. finish this point, because
0: whatever you think about that, the height of Muslim civilization doesn't change the fact that millions of Muslims today think that cartoonists and novelists should be killed for their, their impiety, okay? So, debating the history in my view, is was a waste of time. And and the only reason why I brought it up in the book or, or challenged Majid's reading of history is that I think many people, and I think yourself included, are accepting a far too rosy picture of Muslim history, which is k- kind of a mythology, really, and it's becoming more current in academia for reasons that that are obviously political. I mean, that's my response no, to the charge of being a historical. Hitchens,
1: Christopher Hitchens praised the works of, uh, of the Islamic Golden Age and Bernard well, Lewis we, did as well, y- people okay, on the you, right. Yes.
0: Well, I, I'm not saying there was no Golden Age and we can talk- we, uh, you, re- can you de-emphasize re- it. Okay. I do de-emphasize it because I, one, I think it is exaggerated, but two- I think it's actually not relevant to dealing with the ideas as they're currently accepted. But well, I mean, you bring—it's well, not exaggerated. The preservation of Aristotle, okay. the advancements well, in optics and mathematics and political you, economy; these you, are not exaggeration. Yes, you mentioned that below, and I, let's, let's just deal with it when they come up in your text. But I, I, I'm happy to talk about it. But I'm just telling you why. I think it's it's not actually relevant to get into those details. But and I, as for free speech, I think I hope we can get into that, the Danish cartoons
1: and the Rushdie affair because to me again, you conflate theology with politics and political circumstances here. Okay. Those were those were politicized incidents that certain preachers use for their own self-interest. In one case, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, and in the other case, an individual by the name of Ahmed Abu Laban, a supporter of, of Osama bin Laden. Okay. And so I hope we can get into the, to the details, be, because again, it's not reducible to the Quran or Jihad or those evil backwards Muslims over there.
0: All right. Again, back to your text. There was this charge about being ahistorical, and there was this charge about being nonsensical. Now, you really think you can back up this charge that most of that what I say here is either ahistorical or nonsensical? Not nonsensical, really. That's that's the word you mean.
1: Well, I think it, it flirts with and, and and proceeds on the point of of nonsense at times, um, both for its superficiality and its surface level analysis, and second for the fact that it completely excludes and excuses and takes no interest in the politics of the situation. You know, you are someone who has rightly condemned and talked about ISIS and militarism You know, in, in a very honest way, I, sh- I should say. And yet you take no interest in the conditions that produced ISIS in Syria and how ISIS became a, a band of radicals that were decimated a few years ago to this, this mega uh, terrorist organization. If there was one ISIS member on earth, we wouldn't be talking about ISIS. The fact that it exists and it has twenty-five thousand people, Sam, has to do with politics, and your book did not address that at all.
0: Okay, well, I I don't think it has to do with politics. So, so we just disagree there, and hopefully, we could actually have a reasonable conversation on that. But, but if we're going to have a it reasonable conversation, it was defeated in twenty eleven. What was defeated? Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda was
1: on the run, and Al Qaeda in Iraq, the predecessor organization to ISIS was basically defeated very near to decimated. In 2011 when the Syrian civil war happens it has territory and has ground the secular president of Syria releases jihadists from prison. They flood the Syrian opposition and the next thing you know there's a caliphate and he doesn't attack them there are no attacks against ISIS when it's growing like a cancerous virus there are no attacks against them until the west intervenes and those are the reasons why instead of 10 people being in ISIS there are 25,000 why they're on the front of our minds right now.
0: Okay, But what you have to explain if you're going to ascribe the cause of ISIS to politics, you then have to explain why someone living in the UK with the benefit of a degree in computer science, a third generation British citizen or someone who's in medical school or someone who's who's living in, in the United States and uh, the victim of nothing, who enjoys all the freedoms that you and I do, can wake up tomorrow morning and decide that what they really have to do with their lives is sacrifice their life to fight alongside the jihadis uh, in Syria and Iraq right now. Now, now, if you're if you're going to call that political, if you're going to give some you know tortured reading of their obviously religious motives and their and their their statements about paradise and their statements about. Uh, Islam and their r- resort to the scripture, and you're going to call that politics, right? Then words don't mean anything. But I'm, st- I'm still stuck on this word nonsensical because I think this word means nothing. You say that what I say in the book is nonsensical. I would be amazed if you can find a single statement in the book that's nonsensical. I mean, I, I will pay you $1,000 for every nonsensical statement you can find of mine in the book. I mean, go, you go, go ahead, bankrupt me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't have uh, your book in front of me right now. I, I, listen, I'll give you a year to do this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, either you, you're going to use words that you actually mean or yeah. not, right? So yeah. now, now, is politics going to be one of these words that's like nonsensical? Well, look, look, Sam. Unlike you, I
1: don't um, I don't cry being quoted out of context every single time. There, there, there's a word that you can dispute. It's now, not it's nonsense. Not, it's not a cr- okay, to me an analysis that excludes politics is nonsense. Like It's not worthy of a serious debate because politics, especially in this time, is everything. It, right, okay, it, it okay. matters exceptionally.
0: Okay. Well, let, let, let's take those statements. Politics is everything. Any analysis of anything in human affairs that doesn't include politics is nonsense. Okay, Th- those are claims about how deep politics reaches that I think are quite obviously false. Now, we perhaps we could talk about that, but we if we're going to talk about something like that, We have to use words that make sense, right? And we have to and I mean, you're you're just your attack on me just now about I don't cry every time someone quotes me out of context, right? The lack of charity and the lack of understanding of what I go through dealing with this issue is much of the problem we've been talking about thus far. I mean, I've been trying to just shine some light for you on what it's like to be a well intentioned public person. Raising this issue, right, where every fucking word is parsed in the least charitable, most inflammatory way, and where when it is someone is obviously misrepresenting you, right, where their purpose is to misrepresent you, no one on the other side cares, right? So like the the constituency you are talking to, the the people who would read your salon article and love it and say, oh, finally, there's a, a takedown, another takedown of of Sam Harris and Majid, right? I mean, so it's like the people who, who forwarded it on Twitter because they loved it, you know, like the, like the Glenn Greenwalds of the world. No, he didn't, they, he didn't. I, I don't think he did. And I disagree about foreign policy a lot. You have a colleague, right? I don't know if you still consider him a colleague, but you've co-written an article with the person who I think is the worst actor in this space, Murtaza Hussein, right? So he so I write an article, the entitled "The The End of Liberalism, question mark. And the purpose of the article is to worry about the rise of fascism and to worry about how the liberal blindness to the problem of islamism is empowering the fascists of Europe and and I wrote this in 2006 and there's a line in there which in context is absolutely clear that I am worrying that that liberals are empowering fascists right and and but the line is in certain situations the the people who speak most sensibly about the problem of Islamism or fascists, are fascists. Yeah. And do you still stand by that today? In any given context, that's absolutely possible. Now I'm not. Yeah, I mean, and there are
1: it, many liberals and leftists who speak.
0: Well, yeah. Oh, about. yeah. More so, more and more so. We're talking about something yeah. I wrote ten years ago. But this is a problem: I, the rise of the swing to the right. You know, which is now becoming even. More obvious after the, the the refugee crisis kicked off, and the swing to the right in our own country, where you have someone like Trump launching a credible bid for the presidency. As I mean, that was something that would have been unimaginable, I think, four years ago. That is, I again, I would argue, the result of the failures of liberals on this issue but to come back to the point i was actually making is that Murtaza Hussein your co-author right i don't know if he's a uh, friend and, and of and let, yours please,
1: can, can you tell your listeners what that article was where we were co-authors it was an op-ed Reddit, right? it, was, it was an op-ed in the new york times and what was it about i forgot it was about it was called qatar's showcase of shame and it was about the immense human rights violations bordering upon slavery that migrant workers there are facing. So it's completely irrelevant to this this quotation. And I think what he was, and look, I'm not Mortaza, and I don't think you guys are probably going to have a conversation about this, but I think what he was doing is expressing the kind of anger that many people have towards you for at least empowering or sympathizing with um
0: the far right no, but, in, I, but no but, no but I absolutely was not sympathizing I and mean, Hitchens called right. it an irresponsible comment no, what Hitchens said about it and it's a very difficult thing to parse because it was in the context of writing a, a review of Mark Stein's book but his comment about it was ambiguous in the context of what he was saying about Mark Stein but I hitch and I never got a chance to talk about the the the, fil- the Philip he delivered against me in that in that essay. And I consider that, a, you know, an instance of friendly fire. But in any case, I mean, Hitch and I were, as you, I think you know, totally in sync on this issue. And he was even more hawkish than I was on specific questions of U.S. Yeah. foreign policy, but I, right? The big difference between you two is that in point, his words,
1: he never dehumanized Muslims, at okay, least in my well, readings.
0: I, well, well, no, but there are people who are misreading Hitch in the same way someone like Murtaza is misreading me to make him out to be a genocidal monster. There are people who are going around saying that Hitch once said in a talk that he would have celebrated the the annihilation of, of the country of Iran, right? Or that he wanted, to, he wanted to just kill all Muslims outright, right? But when you actually look closely at what he was saying in, in that latter case, he was talking about members of al-Qaeda in Iraq. He's, he's saying we should be killing members of al-Qaeda in Iraq And then someone like P.Z. Myers, you know, this biologist, Mm -hmm. blogger, troll, says that he's talking about killing all Muslims. But this is the kind of thing that is happening to everyone who touches this issue. And your collaborator on that piece you just described, uh, Murtaza Hussein, is the worst offender on this point. He's the one, who, and I was happy you pushed back against this in your article, he was the one who called Majid a porch monkey, right? But he, in this article, is claiming that I am a fascist who loves fascists, who is supporting fascists, who would, who would support the Golden Dawn Party, who wants to turn immigrants into lampshades, right? But when you actually read my article, clearly all I'm doing is worrying about the rise of fascism. And I actually say in the article that these people are almost as bad as the jihadists themselves, right? So there's there, there's no way to, to for, for a charitable reading uh, or even a, a coherent one yeah. to, to... I think I think Mortaza was, was responding to a number of comments that no, you no. have made. No, no. He, he were... was telling people that I'm a fascist and he's done it over and over again. And and to, to come back to Hitch's disagreement with me here, what he irresponsible, thought... Irresponsible, yes. Yeah. What was irresponsible is that line was so easily lifted out of context and used to slam me falsely and used as a, as apparently, to signal some kind of support for fascism, yeah. that it was irresponsible to write something that could be so easily lifted out of context in that yeah, way. Yeah,
1: and I also think it's, it, yeah, right, it, it's it outrageous was, it, to say something like that, No, it's no, a sentence No, it like was that.
0: not outrageous in context, right? But it was irresponsible to not foresee how it would be used against me, or how it could be used to some alternate purpose. I think it was inaccurate, too, though. The entire leftist opposition...
1: For example, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of a writer who has cri- uh, criticized um, multiculturalism and from the position of okay, the left. You're, someone you're, named-
0: you're changing the subject. I don't want to go down this path. The, the, the reason, only reason why I brought this up is because you – the line you just spoke a few minutes ago about I don't cry every time I'm taken out of context, right? I quote it out of context, mm-hmm. right? You are denying you are okay, but you are denying how malicious this is. Because with a certain level of malice, it is impossible to write anything and not have it used against you, uncharitably. Right. So my classic example here now, which I've used again and again, but which makes the point is, if I wrote somewhere that black people are apes, white people are apes, we're all apes, racism doesn't make any sense, someone like Murtaza Hussein now. And he's done this. And every, This is what, nonsensical. What, no, what, there's no what, evidence
1: what, that he would do that. Look, I know Mortaza. I don't know him well, but he's he, well-intentioned. He what, he, what, he did,
0: what he did in this article on fascism was every bit as egregious as this. There's a Muslim on Twitter who I don't know if he's published elsewhere. He's a lawyer on Twitter who has some tens of thousands of followers. I believe his um, handle is something like Muslim IQ, right? Uh, I think he's an uh, Ahmadi Muslim. I think he's right? Amadi, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He... Use this quote out of context, right? So I, at one point in one of my books, I believe it was Letter to a Christian Nation, I said that um, uh, rape is natural. You know, orangutans rape, dolphins rape, human beings have got, going back centuries have raped. Uh, no one would ever argue on the basis of the fact that rape is natural among primates that it is good, or that it is worth defending, or that it is not worth condemning, or that rapists shouldn't be yeah. in prison. But I mean, right? look—you
1: okay. have to be held accountable for your words. Like, I would never write. Wait, that wait, wait, that wait, way, wait, 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 wait. Natural wait. has okay. a certain meaning. Bullshit. Certain, Bullshit. I would you say are rape go- is evolutionarily ingrained. According wow. to how we have
0: evolved as a I was, species, I was talking about the naturalistic fallacy. It's called the naturalistic fallacy for a reason. The idea that everything that is natural is somehow good is obviously wrong, and I was proving that it was wrong by reminding people that rape, among other things that we're we're desperate to get rid of, like tribal violence, is perfectly natural. And if someone can go back and take the sentence out of context and then pretend that you are using it in defense of rape, right? If you're, if you're going to say that is a justifiable thing to do intellectually, you're no one worth talking to. I mean, your your intellectual I look, I, you're, career you're, you're is over.
1: You're quoting other people's words and you're asking me what I think of them. I didn't launch that allegation against you. I
0: didn't. You just declared some sympathy for. No, it no, no. Just no, 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 no. Now. I said
1: I would have phrased it differently. I, oh. I would have phrased
0: your your viewpoint, but which you I p- agree with. You put the onus on me for phrasing it that way, where in context it was absolutely clear. Right. Yeah. If, if you're you are going to denude our discourse of every everything valuable if you play by these rules. Can no, it, I mean, look, I don't know how we got off on on, on this. T- no, because we got off on the tangent because you said, I don't whine or cry when someone quotes me out of context. Sam, you and have I'm, said, okay, okay. And I'm Would trying to choose? point out to yeah. you how okay. sinister this has okay. become. And you have There's a colleague. Now, you a have a while, and you, I want to respond to you. You're on, not on the, responding. You're changing the subject.
1: No, yeah. I want to respond to exactly, look, listen, you talk about radicalization. You can give me a chance to respond. Now you've talked about all these other people who I have nothing to do with
0: except for more. Than except my, for the worst offender who you at, just, who you just which, defended in the, context of my raising the issue as blameless and rational and complete. And <laughs> Listen, is, and you have you, said you, you, things you, you that just, many people would find not only offensive, but yes, bigoted
1: and that are inaccurate, for example, things like some pro- propositions. And uh, you uh, you can finish the if quote you're gonna,
0: If you are not going to play by the rules of understanding what someone is actually communicating in context, then you can say anything about anyone. You can make anyone look like a bigot. Yeah, right? it's kind of like reading a, a holy text. No, you, you approach it's not, it with your own agenda. It's not like reading a holy text. It's very much like a re- reading a holy text. No. This Omer, this is a totally false move. The gripe I have with the holy books, right, is that a plausible reading, a consistent reading, a taking of it in, it, in its totality, not an obviously dishonest reading, gets you something extreme. And hostile to tolerance and hostile to pluralism. That is the problem. I'm not saying that you can cherry that's, pick... That's f-
1: factually inaccurate for you. Okay, but then if it's Iran a total must-
0: mystery why the Muslim world is the way it is, right? It's a you total... You don't want to talk
1: mi- about politics. You said you don't want to talk, about, you don't want to talk about the Syrian Civil War, you don't want to talk about Saudi I, power, you don't so, want to talk oh, about Iran. I, I, These are all I, factors I, that I empowered, it- uh, that empowered an ideology, Sam, a political ideology that did not exist before. Specific doctrine marshaled by a specific organization, specific organization Organizations that you, you don't want to engage in all these other factors. It's just not tr- As, tr- as well, if we can isolate, first of all, isolate it's not theology in a lab.
0: Well, we can isolate it. If I, I've just showed you how we could isolate it. If someone can wake up tomorrow and decide to look into Islam, right? Someone who lives in Marin, like John Walker Lind, or someone mm. who lives in Orange County, like Adam Gadon, who joined yeah. Al Qaeda, right? Yeah. Someone can decide. Listen, I come from a culture that just wants me to drink more Starbucks and watch more music videos, and I just, I, you know, I, I'm, no one's oppressing me, I, but I just, I want to get into this Islam business. Let's see what's here. And he can get led down the path to extremism. Led down the path, Yeah, right, by whom? By the fucking text, yeah, or by the fucking terrorists
1: too, and the radicals. If you look at the statistics, for example, that come out of France, eighty percent of the jihadists come from non-religious families. For example, a majority of them go to join that, ISIS that, with that, their friends. That, with that their is friends. a
0: totally misleading statement. To 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 come out of a non-religious family means nothing. That does not exonerate religion. Every there are people who find religion in their teens, in their 20s, right? It doesn't tend to happen in your 80s, but there are people who find religion in the context of a non-religious upbringing that doesn't make their commitment or belief in the theology any less religious. they, they, They find religion, that's right, they're born again
1: into it and added to it is this sense of excitement and joy for recreating and creating for the first time a utopian project that gives their lives a lot of meaning. Right. It's not as if, look, if, if these people wanted to go and study Islam and understand it and get the Quran, the the textual nuances of it, they'd go and enroll in a fucking Ph.D. program, dude. OK, it's not, like it's not al- very, Baghdadi? A, al-Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi has
0: got a Ph.D. in Islamic studies. Are you, are you telling me that yeah, he doesn't have enough understanding of Islam? Is that really no, what's I think, the deficit I, there? No, I think that his, his
1: understanding is, is maligned and I'm not sure how credible Baghdad University or wherever he went and studied this actually is. But I will tell you this, knowing people who have studied this for their entire lifetime and people like Shahab Ahmed who put out very scholarly um, studies of this and would basically disagree with you on everything. It's not easy to understand, right? It's not easy to understand Sharia, for example, which is 1400 years of precedent and law. Right? It's not easy to understand the, the the original classical Arabic in the Quran in in the language that it is written, and to understand the debates around it right well, the, the same I, way that it's very difficult to understand the the constitution man you the, the tea party are thumping the constitution in their hand might think that they understand what the constitution says and even lawyers who are running for president don't understand what it says but it's a very complicated document and there are many uh, v- uh, varying interpretations and views on it that require a certain level a certain level of intellectual sophistication and institutional recognition of the work so yes i mean i would say that if they actually wanted to understand the Quran and and the text
0: that they would take. But this is just the point. The, the The problem is that there are multiple understandings. Now, this is a a good thing. It's possible to understand Islam and its texts in a way that is not. The Wahhabi way. The fact that that's possible is the only ray of daylight we have here. And the fa- and, and that possibility is something that Majid Nawaz, right, my collaborator, is trying to push as many people in the direction of it, as am I and as are you ostensibly. But so th- there is Not this, ostensibly. Th- actually. Okay, but there's I don't the, claim to be a reformer. There's this diversity of opinion, but th- what you seem to be denying is that there is a plausible reading of these texts. I mean, basically you're saying that everyone who's a Salafi or a Wahhabi or a Diobandi or some other intolerant strand of Islam, everyone who's an Islamist is insufficiently educated on the topic of Islam. They don't read the books enough, right? That is demonstrably untrue. And,
1: yeah, I think that they'll that, that they spin, for example, the doctrine of
0: jihad and takfir according to their own according to their own politics. Okay, but you know, th- th- but but on your account, everyone does that. Any liberal Muslim is gonna do the same thing. He's gonna spin it in the direction of his politics or more likely ignore it all in the direction of his politics, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and and I hope that the liberal will actually understand the history, which unlike you, I think is very important because this terrorism wasn't happening before. Um, But on the second point, look, you keep saying this and it's really annoying that the text, the Salafis and the Wahhabis and ISIS have a plausible reading of the text. Well, most Muslims, 98% around there, around that number, condemn ISIS and don't consider them Legitimate Muslims okay, again. That's well, that, that's. The, the, I,
0: I don't know what poll you're pulling that from, but let's let me just accept that 98. No, 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 no. Okay, here I have it in front of me. Okay, no, but 100. 100%, no, no, no. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll accept it. First of all, it's not true. There, there, there are polls in places like Saudi Arabia that have sh- that show shocking support for ISIS. Okay. Yeah,
1: and and that should not be a surprise because Saudi Arabia was the first state that had the exact same ideology, an ally of ours that expanded and proselytized this but, around. But the there, world.
0: there are even Salafis who who reject ISIS. Okay, because they yeah they're they, quietists. Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah. And there are people who want a caliphate, they just don't think Baghdadi's got the right caliphate, right? Or he's not or he's not the right tailor. H-
1: historically, Sam, the traditionalists and later the Salafists were politically quietists. They did not want to engage in politics because they saw it as corrupting. So ISIS's sort of agenda here is completely a historical and novel in that sense. And that's the reason why history is important, especially if you're a Muslim person. Because if you ask, listen, I guarantee you this, and coming from this community, I'm certain of it. I only began to understand and appreciate the complexity and richness of Islamic history, the part that you want to de-emphasize that Bernard Lewis does not. I only began to understand and appreciate that and even become aware of it by the time I got to university. And I'm, I'm more educated than most Muslim people. I can only imagine if I had a conversation. In fact, I don't have to imagine it. I've had this conversation. They don't know about it. For them, Islam is born born um, the day they were. For all they care. It's what they see on television. So it's very important. The history is very important for this reason. And going back to the polls, yes, one hundred percent in Lebanon, ninety four percent in Jordan, eighty four percent in the Palestinian territories who are being occupied, and they, yet they still condemn ISIS. And okay,
0: so, yeah. but okay, so hum, so even Hamas condemns ISIS, right? Yeah, on the point. ISIS, right? so, yeah, uh, the point, yeah so, because so, these so, groups so, are not the same. Yeah, they're not the same, but in in many respects they're the same with respect to their belief about Jews and women and jihad and they just they're just not aligned politically and and they're not precisely aligned the- theologically but they're close enough to be part of the same problem I have with islamism right so theologically I mean, they're actually farther apart than you think. Well, they're I mean, not. They're not has, you imagine I'm actually uninformed on this topic. I'm not, but I'm just saying that these are distinctions yeah. without a difference for my purposes. Yeah. Yes, ISIS I mean, is example, the worst. For example,
1: Hamas has offered. Hamas has offered Israel a truce. In 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 the past, um, they've worked with Israel on on security. They're still a terrorist organization. Not that you've asked me to say that, but I think that okay, they are. Yeah, but as and, and as and, you and know, and ISIS
0: would never do that. Okay, yes, Al Qaeda would never do and, that. And and also, it's very likely that Hamas would do it based on theological reasons. In a way, and they that don't. It, no, no. There, you can also offer a truce in a totally cynical and predatory way, where it's just you're just basically rearming during that truce. As you know, there's a theological basis for that. Hamas also stopped suicide bombing for theological and political reasons,
1: and now they actually need to rein in Islamic Jihad and other farther right-wing groups within the
0: Palestinian territories who want to suicide bomb. Okay, well, we're near the two-hour mark, so let's just try to cover a little more of your text. I want to talk about these, these issues of radicalization and political Islam. Okay, it's going to come up. All right, well, even just this next piece I think is worth doing. So so the, the paragraph is, what is right in the book?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> What is right in the book can be attributed solely to Majid Nawaz. In fact, one can skip over everything Sam Harris says because he is merely repackaging ideas he has articulated many times before. Among the elementary truisms Nawaz points to, addressing the grievances many young Muslims feel, changing the narrative the Islamist demagogues have mastered, injecting a dose of cultural liberalism into conservative societies to induce progress on women's rights and free speech, raising the low expectations held by too many Americans about supposedly thin-skinned Muslims who cannot take a joke and must be coddled. Well and good, and self-evident enough, except to the most benighted ideologues. <clears throat> okay. So And I that- hope we can talk about what a strategy for... Um, actually inducing that kind of progress looks like i proposed one earlier in our conversation about supporting the leftist and progressive element in the middle east and muslim world that exists existed in the form of the pakistan people's party before it, it was co-opted by by
0: the okay. right existed in the form mm-hmm. of Wait, i
1: am going to list off some of these people so, so your listeners don't think that well you, you guys you, you
0: can't but just just do it when we start talking about the text i mean so okay I, I just so you bring up two things in this paragraph that uh, that I want to deal with. I, I, I think your frame, again, your framing of this issue strikes me as just false here. So the, the first point is, you seem to be claiming that all of this is so obvious, right? Now, all the points that that Majid makes are so obvious as to not even require as to not even require saying, right? So it's as though all Muslims sound exactly like Majid. And I can't imagine how you can say this, but... oh, I can say
1: it because I know Muslim reformers who have been working on the front lines of these issues in America,
0: in Canada, in Britain, and in the Middle East and South Asia. That's why. I'm sure you can point to... I, I know a few other Muslim reformers, right? But there's almost no one... Who sounds like Majid? I mean, you don't even sound like Majid, right? And that's why Majid is such a breath of fresh air, right? And, and, and that's why he gets so much abuse from his fellow Muslims. If, if, if you think that what no, he's doing is, is totally obvious, right? If you think that it's, it's uncontroversial to say that we, we need to go from pluralism to secularism to liberalism, as he does in, in, in our book, then you have to explain why he gets so much abuse. A great friend of mine,
1: Aliyah Taraz, who is also a writer... Was, call, was writing against uh, what he calls Falwell Muslims in 2007 in a five-part series for The Guardian. Now he steeped that in Islamic history, and he offered a way forward that was actually plausible. In fact, it influenced me about creating and supporting and fostering, or recreating, actually the Muslim left, which already exists in nascent form in every single country. Um, and so these reformers, reformers already exist. I mean, you said I don't sound like Majid Nawaz. I take that because of my good Canadian accent as, as, as a compliment. I wrote an article after Charlie Hebdo, and I'd that those cartoons should be republished because no community deserves special treatment, right? And that's something that Majid and I, and you and I would agree on. The reason why Majid Nawaz is criticized by people like Haroon Mogul, by many others within the Muslim community, why he lacks standing, and by standing I mean legitimacy within those communities, is because he's seen very often as lecturing them from the outside. Do you know what someone told me? Someone told me I don't. A conservative Muslim said he didn't need a lecture from a former jihadist because he didn't have any inclination to become a jihadist. He was just trying to practice his Islam. And this person, and many people like him, don't take Majid Nawaz seriously. They don't read him, and they're not going to listen to him. But they will listen to the to the local community organizers working every single day within Muslim communities in mosques and community centers, and have been doing so for the past thirty years. Yeah, okay, well, and those uh, those who are politically
0: organized in the Middle East and South Asia, right? But the difference between Majid and those people, and the reason why Majid is so much clearer on the points that we need to get clear about, and the Muslim community needs needs to get clear about points like free speech and the rights of the minorities within the minorities, the rights of gays and and uh, women, and freethinkers, and even apostates. The reason why I can count on almost one hand the number of people who are as clear as Majid in the Muslim community on these points is because they are not practicing the kind of identity politics that these other people practice, the people like Murtaza or and the kind of identity politics that I certainly read in your in the background of your piece, and then I hear, where? hear where? in the background where do I what practice, you're
1: saying. Well, where do I practice well, identity well, politics? Well, it's, it's your whole... I'm opposed to identity politics. Well, no, I'm but a it, liberal.
0: But it's, no, but it's your whole beef against Majid is not being sufficiently rooted in the community. Is it, that's that a basic got no proposition. Standard.
1: If you want to change a community, if you want to influence change, you have to be seen as a, as a legitimately rooted within that community. Okay, well, well, go back to Ma- Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. These people would not have
0: influenced change if they were seen as outsiders. This is a fundamental okay. political principle. Yeah, but that Okay, but that is also a problem with the state of the community. It's a problem that's to see everything through the lens of politics and identity politics, even worse, is a problem when you're talking about for instance, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, right? It, it's, it's entirely legitimate for Muslims to
1: feel like Majid Nawaz is not one of them because he is getting taking money from right-wingers.
0: Well, let's get to that because that, that's not true. But but first of all, okay, it, I, it, it's I, I, not legit. About- it's not legitimate because, think about what you're saying, about think about Majid's story, right? First of all, he wasn't an Islamist, he wasn't a, a jihadist, but he was an Islamist. He had a Muslim family, which he lost when he lost his Islamism, right? So he's, he had a hijabi wife, he had a son with her. They're both estranged from him because of Islamist ideology, right? He ha- he runs an organization that that is staffed mostly by Muslims. They also have Muslim families the idea i mean later on in the piece you say that what what he has to do is talk to more muslims all he does is talk to muslims he's lived in in multiple muslim countries he speaks fluent arabic and urdu he's studied with theologians he to say that he's not rooted in the community is crazy now i understand he's not perceived as okay. being rooted in and the he, community for those reasons and he's not perceived because of he's the, buddying up to right wingers of the identity time, that, that,
1: po- he's, it, that uh, delegitimizes him. Look, let, he is a political reformer, and so he should understand the basic
0: equations that that determine political success. We'll, we'll get. I want to get to your actual okay, statements about him in the piece, but okay, okay. So uh, I, I want to
1: respond to a quick look. I agree with you. The minorities within the minorities must be protected, right? However many atheists there are in Saudi Arabia or, or Egypt, they need to be protected, and we must speak out. On behalf of them, so that the Muslim right, the Falwell Muslims, don't don't um, dominate the narrative. But one thing I don't hear you speak out about are all those the Muslims in the majority who have very often been killed and maimed either by their own dictators whom we we have supported or by by our bombs. You know, Stephen Walt, the Harvard uh, professor, did a back of the envelope uh, examination of how many Muslims the United States has bombed and, and killed, and he came up to 300,000. There were o- almost a million people who were killed in Iraq. 1,500 civilians in Gaza. Sisi has ki- estimatedly killed thousands of people. Bashar al-Assad, and here our inaction, is, is is culpable. 800,000 people. I have I don't see you criticizing or lamenting um, the deaths of those people. It makes me wonder, does your heart turn for their lives
0: or not? First of all, I do lament collateral damage. In fact, my, my discussion Look, so you
1: dehumanize it again, collateral damage. No. These are
0: individuals, Sam. These are people who have been I, I, massacred not, I, and maimed. No, no. I, I don't mean to dehumanize with that phrase. I mean, that, that is. we can talk about that being a problematic phrase, but I'm just referring to the fact that there are people who have been killed in wars, some wars that I think are defensible, some wars that I think are not, right? I mean, there's a difference there. I, I, I view the war in Iraq and the, the war in Afghanistan differently. But Collateral damage is a huge problem in war, and it's it has been for a very long time. We won what I think everyone views as a necessary war against Germany in World War II, and the level of collateral damage there was just a, as horrific as ever happened in human history. And so, and now the Germans are our friends, right? So now if you're going to look at the bombing of Dresden, I think in retrospect that's it was probably indefensible even at the time— uh, and uh, tactically unnecessary, but let's say it was tactically necessary. Our Who generals knows? would have,
1: our generals would have been in Nuremberg if we lost that war. Yeah. That was a war crime, as was Hiroshima. So well, yes,
0: well, I agree with you. Uh, okay, so no, th- but there, there are, there are debates on. I think there are reasonable debates on all of these points in terms of, and I think Hiroshima is more certainly more debatable than Dresden. But in any case, we waged war against Germany and Japan uh, at a scale. That is that no one could contemplate now, and, and and certainly no one could be sanguine about defending ethically. And now the Germans and the J- Japanese are our friends, right? I mean, and we went we went into those societies. We didn't rape and kill everyone and steal all their their material wealth and enslave them. No, we went in and rebuilt their societies with them, and now they are our allies. And that is the world. And and that one. There's two things to to realize about that. One is that it reveals something about the importance of our intentions in waging that war. Our intention was not world conquest. We weren't trying to execute a genocide against Germans and and Japanese. And there really is no moral equivalence to the two sides in that war. When you ask what the Germans would have done if they had conquered the world, or the Japanese, if they had conquered the world, we would have a very different world we, we would be living in now. And so even the analogy you drew to Nuremberg there was false. Yeah, okay, well, look, intentions in foreign policy are
1: actually the most useful and the most irrelevant to analyze an an, an ethical... And the reason why is because you can have great intentions and and kill a million people and you can have awful intentions... and. It's not, and doesn't often turn on the weapon. So yes, World War II is, in some cases, not a useful analogy today because all the norms and laws that we've developed internationally since then were, were a response to that brutality, and we don't want to go back to what it was like bombing Dresden or dropping a nuclear bomb <laughs> in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the right? di- but the but, deeper but,
0: issue, there's no way around the deeper issue, which is to wage any kind of war, even a necessary war. It runs the risk of collateral damage, which, yeah, but th- I- which these in numbers its are huge. Sam, oh, oh, yes, oh, yes for, for the most oh, sophisticated but, militaries. No, but, okay, and In fact, some of these, okay, some, of these have set- some of these numbers are, are are some of that data is highly politicized, and I don't know what the numbers are in certain cases. Because, for instance, the U.S. is getting blamed in many of those tallies. The Pentagon for, numbers are actually conservative. Okay, if you look at no, no, what other impartial wait, investigators wait,
1: wait. look at the casualties in the Iraq war, what you call
0: collateral damage, and just dismiss as if these it, bodies its not, no, no, no. not exist. No, okay, okay, look, again, okay, you've just wandered into a totally uncharitable and disingenuous reading of what I said. Collateral damage is a standard phrase that everyone uses on this topic. I'm not diminishing the, the horror of those who are collaterally damaged. And I've written about this at length, okay? And there's I don't know anyone who has focused on how bad ethically collateral damage is more than I have, okay? But
1: you exonerate by pointing to intentions, and no, intentions in international
0: not, relations are irrelevant, they're, they're Okay, is it irrelevant? Is the difference between performing our own rape of non-king on Japan after we've militarily subjugated them, and doing what, in fact, we did, which is helping them rebuild their society. Is that difference irrelevant? Look, in terms of foreign policy and international relations, if we hold the highest principle,
1: human rights, to be we want to save lives and we don't want innocent people to be killed, that turns on consequentialism. This goes back to Thucydides. The intentions are irrelevant because people have... Often, vi- oftentimes very good intentions to do horrendous things or they have awful intentions and they end up doing less awful things. Yeah, okay but
0: the difference there, Omer, is that the intention is the only so guide J- to what Japan they're going raped, to do next.
1: Japan had a rape of Nanking that they intended and that they executed and that they were able to implement. Now, if you suppose that their intentions were great and that what they wanted to save... China from the Communist Party, for example. They wanted to reclaim China. They had very benign intentions the way the colonial and imperialist powers did. And yet more people were raped than would have been had they had awful intentions. Then the the ethics of that leads to an absurd conclusion, right? The fact is that the United this this was this was the point of contention between you and Noam Chomsky, again, who I had some many disagreements with, especially post 9-11. But intentions in foreign policy, this is the reason why uh, the morality of an action or the ethics of an action cannot turn on intention because A... Every Western policymaker claims to have great intentions. And B, if our highest principle is saving lives and not having innocent people killed, that's consequentialism. And that turns on how many people have actually died.
0: Well, first, no, I've written at great length about consequentialism. I've written an entire book putting forward my version of consequentialism. You don't have to stop your analysis of consequences at body count. And in fact, if you do just stop at body count, you run into into just moral monstrosities. It's
1: one one place. It's one place, right? Since
0: we're talking about Collateral damage. Yes. So intention matters for a variety of reasons. And as you know, I didn't actually get to have a conversation with Chomsky on this point. I was just simply trying to have one. And who knows, it could have gone as sideways as this one and it very likely would have. But the issue with intention is that. If nothing else, knowing what someone was attempting to do and why they were attempting to do it is a very good guide for the kinds of things they will attempt to do in the future. When you understand what somebody wants, how they want the world to be, then you know what it will be like, very likely, to collaborate with them in the future. You know whether they're gonna be a good neighbor. If you know your neighbor is a cannibal, right? And he's just coming over for dinner every night in the hopes that he's going to get a chance to eat you when you're not looking, right? His intentions are highly relevant to know, right? And it's different than if it's somebody who really has your best interests at heart. Now, of course, this is an obvious and pedantic and unimportant point that it is possible with the best of intentions to create huge harms. Yes, obviously, that is something which, if you do have the best of intentions, you really care about. If I want to help my daughter and I wind up cutting her head off, no one is going to be more concerned about the disparity between my intention and the results in the world than I am. It would be gross
1: negligence. So here, what's the distinction between an intentional war crime and a war crime that's grossly negligent? You're a great defender of the Israeli state. I think that Israel, of course, has a right to exist, but independent. An analyses of the 2014 Gaza War showed that they d- they used, in fact, less discriminant weapons than they could have, and that they bombed many civilian civilian centers. Well, listen, and that I, had,
0: this is something we could talk about with an infinite amount of time. I want to get back to the text. I, I think that, okay, as you the know, the, the analysis minorities of
1: minorities within minorities and not all these other Muslims, which is why you're accused of dehumanizing Muslim okay, lives because of that. I've, no, I haven't heard you say it in print a, a, at all, actually. What, what, what haven't I said in print? lamenting the, the the immense loss of life caused by Western foreign policy and the support for, for local dictators. I mean, I mean well, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people
0: now. We have to talk about specific situations. There are specific dictators in specific moments where... The alternative to them is either just total chaos or jihadist lunacy, right? So
1: that's it, bullshit, Sam. That's entirely bullshit. Listen, and I know you're probably thinking about Sisi and Assad. The fact is that the democratic opposition has not had the opportunity to organize and engage in a political space. there may be cases where that's the case. Those, wait, wait, no, no. Those dictators actually worsen. Uh, um, the Islamist problem, and they actually they actually confirm the Islamist narrative, and that and they push the Islamists underground. And the Islamists have an ability to organize and say, "Look, we're anti-establishment, we're anti-status quo." These this okay. this person in power is an infidel, well, supported listen, by the okay, West. Okay, let's
0: let's just t- to take a moment to drill down on this, okay? Because one of the main criticisms of the war in Iraq, right, which I did not support, which I always just Said, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. We'll know in the end based on consequentialist analysis, but it looks like a, a dangerous distraction from the war in Afghanistan. That has always been, you know, at the time when people were supporting it and people were against it, I didn't know what I thought about the war in Iraq. But the people who looked at it then and certainly the people who look at it now and say we are culpable for all the death and destruction caused by our misadventure there, they say this either explicitly or implicitly claiming that we should have left the dictator in place, right? We should have left Saddam Hussein in power because deposing him just pulled the lid off of all the sectarian hatred that we should have known was there, right? We are, we are morally culpable for our ignorance and our negligence, and we pulled the lid off of this, and now we have ISIS. So we made ISIS and- That's and, a
1: simplistic. That's
0: very simplistic. Okay, I don't may, agree with that. All right, so Okay. Well, many people believe this, but in, but in any case, then I'll ask you what in fact you believe here. Should, sure. should we ha- just have left Saddam Hussein in power? No, I mean, look, of course, Saddam Hussein had, had, he was actually the
1: closest, I know the analogy is made to Hitler, but he was actually the closest despot um, to Hitler in terms of his totalitarianism. I mean, this is someone who would execute people and then send a bill to the family for the bullets, right? This is incomprehensible evil. Right. And so we should have, we should have taken him out uh, at some point. Now, the so the war with with Saddam Hussein was postponed in 1991. So the we Saddam Hussein tries to make Kuwait a province of Iraq. He is repelled legitimately. And of course, many progressives at the time opposed that. In fact, I think even Hitchens did, but uh, according to anti-imperialist logic, and, and they were wrong there. And what happens afterwards is there is a organic uprising with Shia Muslims and Kurds and even Sunnis disaffected from the regime. And they're looking around thinking they're going to get support from the United States. And the U.S. is completely silent. Saddam Hussein conducts a mass a massacre of them, mass murdering Shia
0: and the Kurds. Okay, so 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 what in, we should so what we should have let, done? Let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. W- what in, we should in, in have? Two, what should we have done? Should, we should have gone in then and supported? Yeah, the Kurds? Yeah, it was Kurtz? a deliberate
1: policy position taken by. Colin Powell and the Bush administration so, that there was not going to be regime change okay. even though the, the people were demanding it.
0: But how are you just not saying that we shouldn't have pulled the lid off of all the sectarian chaos a, a decade or more earlier? Because there, the sectarian chaos is not inherent in the people,
1: Sam. What happens it what happens in two thousand and three? and if you want to what I would have done in two thousand and three, right before the Iraq war was launched, the United Nations passed a resolution unanimously supported by Russia and China as well, demanding that Saddam Hussein reveal his his weapons program. Now had we done this through international law and actually gone to the u n again, there'd be and 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 were receptive to to global public opinion. We could have had the world, on our side. But the sectarian hatred is not inherent. It's not like we just pulled it off. What happened was that the U.S. allowed all kinds of looting and massacres to occur. There there weren't enough troops there. Mr. Bremer debathified the country and put 100,000 people with guns in their hands, unemployed. And then a gangster, a religious gangster named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the founder of ISIS, goes and begins blowing up UN buildings and mosques. That's how the sectarian war begins. It's not because of the US war. It's not because the sectarian hatreds were inherent in it. This is what you should ask. Wait, Sam, just one one final point. The people on the left or anyone who says we went into Iraq, therefore there is sectarian hatred there. The question you should ask them is, do you think sectarian hatred is inherent in the Iraqi and Arab people? Because that's the conclusion that you
0: ultimately well, have to agree with, and I don't buy that. It's inherent in the fourteen hundred year old schism between Shia and Sunni, and it's and it's spread the world over. So, you, so you have to explain why. Sunnis blow up Shia mosques in Pakistan, or Ahmadi yeah, I mean, mosques in Pakistan. Not,
1: not Sunni, Sam. It's a particular jihadist organization. Okay. The Pakistani Taliban does this because because they want to stoke sectarian oh, yes. tensions. So, so, I mean,
0: where, where in the Quran? in does it say Sunni or Shia? Wait, Again, a political okay. dispute. No, it's not a political dispute. It's, it's a difference of uh, of theology. I mean, What's so, the difference in theology? Of well, who should the, rule? That's politics. Well, it's, it's a different theological reading of history and the succession after the prophet. It's a different political and, reading. And it's, is. The, it's the veneration of, of imams. I mean, it's, it's, it's yes, there's tiny differences in theology, but these are the differences that matter. No, there's
1: nothing. Sam, the, 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 the Sunni-Shia dispute begins... After okay. the death of the but, fourth caliph, and there's a civil war that takes place. For if you're going to call reason. it,
0: but but it's it's politics that is is now religiously enshrined. I mean, someone who's born a Shia who identifies only as a Shia, or a, someone who's more even more reasonably born a Sunni and views Shia Shia as apostates. That is a religious conception of what you're calling yeah, politics. Yeah,
1: okay, but, but see, now, you're, now this is a sleight of hand because you've broadened what, what counts as religion. No, no, the only difference, difference not between these text. people is religion. The only we should difference. not talk about text. The to, only, well, we can talk about text, but politics is what matters here. It's not. It's it, a,
0: the, religious tribalism is not ordinary politics. Okay, the, religious
1: tribalism is probably ingrained if, in us. If, but you, it's politically if you think
0: your political difference with someone matters not just for this world and not for any terrestrial purpose to which you could be devoted, but for eternity in par- it, will, it will spell the difference between whether or not you and your kids get into paradise, that is religion. That's not politics. Yeah, but that's not grounded in the text of oh, or, Paradise. Or, or in paradise the plot, is or not they, the difference between no, being the, the difference between the, apostate, most, the difference between being an apostate. The difference between being an apostate and not, the legitimacy of waging jihad, the promise of martyrdom—that's not grounded in the texts. Well, that's not okay, religious. Wait, let's,
1: let, let's talk about all those points. But the the example that you use, which you've now run away from, is the bomb, the Sunni bombing of a Shia mosque. I'm not running. Gra- uh, I'm not running away from where, it. I'm where, talking where about religion. Where was the Shia war in 1920? Where was it? If it's all inherent in the text. Where were the bombings of mosques by Sunnis and by Shias okay. in 1920? Where was it? This comes about for for specific political reasons that begin in
0: 1979. You're, you're saying that the, the schism between Sunni and Shia the world over a, as a matter of Islamic history began in 1979?
1: I'm saying that the bombing and the killing of Sunnis by Shia and by Shia by Sunnis Begins in 1979 you're, you're for a saying, number of political you're saying reasons. There,
0: there was not war. Well, there there were no bombs. If you go back too far prior, in history,
1: prior but. to so prior to this, yes, the schism does exist. But they live next to each other because their only disagreement is a little bit on how they pray, depending on the sect, um, the the principles of of the faith in terms of the five or six pillars, and a political uh, different reading of history that takes place after the prophet's death and after the death of of the caliphs, and so. This is a, a political interpretation, but the killing, the massacre, the bombing, which I condemn and which you condemn, begins in 1979 for a number of reasons: because of the Iranian Revolution, you're, because of Saudi.
0: You're saying there has been no blood spilled between Sunni and Shia. No, I didn't say that, Sam. But between Except, you're saying it started in 1979.
1: There, there, there's always wars between brothers in every single in every single religion, and there is this thing called the narcissism of small differences, and there has been tensions. I'm saying that the the modern incarnation of the Sunni-Shia war that we've seen with Saudi executing the the, the the Sheikh and 50 people and Sunnis blowing up mosques, Zarqawi and ISIS blowing up mosques in, in Iraq and ISIS executing Shia, that begins in 1979 okay. for specific political reasons that apparently you don't want to discuss.
0: No, no, well, to say that... Mo- it's not theology there. To say that modern anything begins... Recently is is a tautology, right? I mean, so yes, bombs didn't exist until what the end there were of the, no eight, 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 mass the 19th there were no century. No mass
1: killings. There were no organized, premeditated murder of Shias before. Yes, there might have been isolated pogroms that happened, but there was nothing like we've seen now. It's okay. enti- for 1,400 years, largely. Yes, also, Muslims lived in the- peace. The, yes, with, with each other. Well, no. Okay. And very often with 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 Jews and with Christians. All right. Well, now
0: um, we're going into a variant reading of history here, which you are going to. Well, Again, I,
1: do you want me to quote, quote you, Bernard Lewis, on this? Because he said that it was much better for Muslim, for Christians, and Jews to live in Islamic in Islamdom yes. than it was for non okay. non Christians yes. and non and 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 Jews. And that, that says
0: absolutely nothing good about Islam, and just reminds us how terrible Christianity was in the 14th century or before.
1: Well, you have to historicize your comparisons, right? You can't compare it to 21st century.
0: No. The
1: nation state is born in 1640. I
0: I am the first to admit how horrible medieval Christianity was, right? So it's it's not—but you're drawing the wrong conclusion from that. You're saying that life for Christians and Jews— was fine in the Muslim world, which it wasn't and never was. Okay. Well, look, you have and to you, you by, have by, to contextualize by, by it by well,
1: What's your definition of fine? Is it twenty first century Switzerland? And of course not. But if we're talking about the entire world that existed outside of the Muslim world at that point, Islamic Listen. civilization, with bo- which both Hitchens and Bernard Lewis have praised for its diversity and openness then that's the comparison you need to be making, Sam. Otherwise, it's ahistorical, and it's unfair to say, oh, well, Switzerland is
0: nice now. Listen, it was possible in the 5th century BC to come up with a a more benign, more tolerant, more open-minded view of the universe than, than the Abrahamic tradition ever managed, right? There were Greek philosophers, and there were Buddhists, and there were Jains, and there were people in other traditions who had ethics that were far more modern than anything Christianity, Judaism, or Islam managed for over a thousand years, right? So don't give me the the story about it being ahistorical, right? It's possible for human beings to realize they don't want to keep slaves or or force their women to live in bags or perform clitorectomies on their daughters or anything else we rightly deplore now and which is still part of our world. It was possible to realize that 2,000 years ago and some people managed it. Okay. Yeah well you know what the civilizations that existed you have to compare them
1: A against each other and B you can compare them to the modern conception of rights for example. So sh- the Sharia as it was practiced in the 19th and 10th century gave women property rights. It gave women the right to divorce. It gave right, women the right to inherit. Wo- and again I'm no, no fan of these regimes but I'm trying to I don't want to say educate you but at least provide some facts. Women were fighting on the front lines of wars that the Muslim armies had. And that's something that ISIS won't even allow today. The Ottoman Empire banned slavery in 1839. The United States didn't do it before, uh, until um, until a few years later. Um, and so like, look, we have to contextualize it within the history. This is the debate that I wanna have. Because okay. if, it's, if it's all in the text and the, 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 the text is dead and it preaches terrorism,
0: there's a connection between beliefs and consequences, as you say, then why wasn't it happening before? Well, it was happening before, but it was happening in a context of less technology, right? So you you, don't—it's only so many people you can kill with swords and spears, right? So yes, bomb-making technology changes the game, and nuclear bombs change the game. Dirty bombs even change the game, and this is what I'm worried about. But massacres were not happening. But but, if—but listen, there are massacres of Jews going back. Throughout Muslim and Christian history, and at no point was it a good scenario to be a Jew living in the Muslim world, or being, a, or, or living in in the, the in, under Christendom in the Middle Ages. It just simply wasn't. And Although, do you for would recognize that there reasons. were
1: some doctors and philosophers and polymaths who were Jewish and played yes. very central roles with the yes. Islamic empires? Right? Yes.
0: Okay, and we can probably number them on one hand. Okay, so it's. Well, I mean, well, I don't know about that. Listen, we can talk about the golden age of, of Islam if if you insist, but I, I, I just want to go back to a point you made about my putative misunderstanding of the facts on the ground in a country like Iraq. Now, obviously, I'm aware that not every Iraqi is or was a jihadist, right? So when I'm talking about the sectarian hatred between Sunni and Shia, I'm not saying every Sunni or every Shiite hated his co-religionists, right? I am well aware that that these communities intermarried. I'm well aware that there are millions of Muslims in even in these contexts who just want to live normal lives and are not, by any definition, highly energized religious religious sectarians, right? And eager to fight an internecine civil war. So when I talk about pulling the lid off of this. I'm not talking about 100% of Iraqis just starting to commit murder based on their religious differences, but there's enough of a commitment to that in these societies that we are getting blamed for not having foreseen it. And I mean, to, to rewind the tape all the way back to the point where we first started to, to talk about dictators, it is not a crazy position to say or to wonder or to ask the question because we are being blamed endlessly now for not having done that. It is not crazy to wonder, well is this society just too divided along religious lines and it, is it too lacking in the kinds of institutions that you need in order to have a, a viable democracy and a commitment to civil society for us to just depose the dictator no matter how bad well, this dictator is and that's yeah, a, that, that's yeah. a that's a question that it may be very difficult to get an We may only know in retrospect what was true. But again, it is one of the main reasons why people think we were completely wrong morally and, and, and remain totally culpable for the resulting devastation for going into Iraq in the first place.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? Going into a country and doing it negligently and not having enough troops and, and completely debathifying the army and basically creating the space for a terrorist group, yes. We are culpable, culpable for that, okay. very much so. But,
0: but I would argue that what all those failures you just listed were largely, if not entirely, the result of our not understanding the level of religious sectarianism. The no, r- it's not un- no, our understanding how to do regime change. That's no. what it was not. The,
1: the sectarian hatreds were not... It, you didn't just take the lid off of something that was brewing for 1,400 years. That's not how it happened. How it happened was that armed men who were worried about... Um, their lack of protection, organized, and no longer had
0: a job. Okay, yeah, but they were they were worried about their lack of protection because of the sectarian threat. Do you think that if Iraq was a hundred percent Shia or a hundred percent Sunni, we would have the same result when we ineptly depose Saddam Hussein? I don't know. I mean, maybe I, there would be different sects. I, different I don't know. Tri- no. I think, I think no, no, tribalism is you, inherent. Don't inv- invent different sects. I'm talking about a hundred percent Sunni or a hundred percent Shia. No different. A single sect. I think at that point if Iraq was 100% Shia what you would see is there would
1: be ideological warfare, warfare if all the other assumptions hold if we just if there's not a functioning government if there's any kind of looting all the, all those assumptions hold then you're going to see ideological warfare yes i mean you, it's been done before but you 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 think that sectarian hatreds are inherent and you want to support dictators because islamists because what uh, comes afterwards I'm not, I'm, might know, be no, worse. No, no, no.
0: You're spinning this the wrong way. I'm not, one, I'm not saying in, in, inherent to what. It's inherent to the definition that we that you inherent belong, to the society. You belong to a different sect than I do, right? It's inherent to the two people who for whom. Their religious tribalism is the most important political variable in their lives. If you get rid of the tribalism, it's not inherent. It just—it's these are ideas,
1: right? So it's—it's right? it's, it's politics again, right? We're talking—we're—we're in, we're, we're in the field well, of politics, well, no, not I, theology. I, I, as no, no.
0: No, we're no, we're talking about religious politics. I will grant you that the, the theological differences between Sunni and Shia are minuscule, but the the totality of their political difference is their religious identity right? And, and the, the religious importance they see in it. It's not a political importance. We're talking about eternity here. No, we're the, talking we're about murder. We're talking martyrdom. about power. We're talking, we're about, talking power. about paradise. The, we're talking look, about the suicide bomber. There is a Sunni who's going to get up this morning or tomorrow morning or the day after that and decide to blow up a Shia or Ahmadi mosque in Pakistan. And he's going to see no benefit from this behavior in this life. Right. There's there's there is nothing good politically that's going to yeah. come to him or his family yeah, as a I result mean, of this.
1: Maybe maybe not in Pakistan now because the military there has actually been taking a very strong stance against this kind of suicide terrorism. But look, I take your point that there, there's a religious element to suicide bombing that they think is legitimate. I don't think. Is But I think like the problem with the Sunni-Shia conflict and just reducing it to that is that you exclude other kinds of analyses. So, for example, Shias were living peacefully in Pakistan for most of its history, again, up until after the Iraq war, uh, sorry, the Afghanistan war. And then you have a new Pakistani version of the Taliban that begins blowing up Shia mosques, the founder of the country. Was a Shia? Some of its some of its intellectual and political elite were Shia. It's the same thing in many other countries. In Lebanon, for example, yes, they fought a civil war because they wanted to know who's going to control the government, right? Is it going to be a Christian who's going to who's going to control the Lebanese government, or is it going to be a Sunni, or is it going to be a Shiite? Eventually, they came to an agreement. Now, it's the the Shia militants and the ISIS folks who are threatening them. Um, in, okay. other well, in other countries, in other countries as well. I mean, look in in Iran which you would say is an Islamist regime, and I would agree with you, and you would think that they're trying to put all the Jews to death. There's 8,000 Jews living in Iran. There's a seat reserved for them in well, the well, parliament. They're very proud of their Persian Jewish identity. And so it's not well, just well, the well, first secretary- of all,
0: it's not... I mean, as you know, the mandate under Islam, however doctrinaire, is not simply to kill all the Jews, right? I mean, there's there's the whole business right. of how, allowing them to live as Dimi, which That's they ha- Christianity, yeah. So it's it's not, again... The only way to constrain this, so that we're actually talking about anything coherent is to is to, I think, come back to specific points. And I want to return to the the paragraph you just read because you made another point uh, after claiming that that uh, everything that Majid is saying is obvious and that so many other people are doing it. You made the point that uh, something about supposedly thin-skinned Muslims who cannot take a joke. Now, I mean, then this is the kind of writing, and this is the kind of attitude. That I just find just impossible to to square with the facts, and I just it it seems to betray a kind of identity politics or just a lack of engagement with with the problem. So, what do you mean by supposedly thin-skinned? I mean, are you, so are you doubting whether such thin-skinned Muslims exist, or that are you are you just saying they're a tiny minority? What are you saying?
1: There are thin-skinned people who are going to, in, in, in Islam and Muslims, who are going and going, they're going to protest if you, if you publish a cartoon or if you write a novel that, that they consider offensive to Islam. What I'm saying is that, well, number one, we shouldn't coddle them even if they are thin-skinned. But number two, recognize that this is not theology. That's making them go and run off and do crazy things, or to burn effigies, or to storm embassies, or whatnot. It's politics. In the, in, the, in terms of the rush affair, wait,
0: wait, 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 Okay, so so suppo- First of all, you seem to be stepping away from supposedly thin-skinned. I mean, do you,
1: you're, it, too many Americans about supposedly thin. Do you
0: think most Muslims are th- are thin-skinned and emotional? Most Muslims take. Uh, if you are speaking the world over, I don't I don't know if it's most, as in more than fifty percent, but it is a shockingly high percentage in any community that's been polled. I mean, so for instance, let me just take Britain, where I know the polling was done. 68% of British Muslims think that the Danish cartoonists should have been imprisoned, right? And and undoubtedly, some percentage of those thought they should have been killed. I mean, the question wasn't asked, but they asked whether they should have been punished, right? Now, 68% think that's the case so and that's, and that's Britain. so now what is it in Sudan what is it in Nigeria what is it in in and Saudi there's Arabia?
1: Well it says British Muslims are better integrated into British society than even white Britons are. All right. Well, so, I mean, I, I, is is, is no, this no, a red herring? I mean, I asked. No, it's not. It's not develop, a. It's not. A, integrated and it's not
0: more. a red herring when people show up at your door and kill you for no, the I cartoons.
1: I The Danish cartoons were an inflated political opportunity for a particular brand of Islam well, well, then, to stoke threats. But, okay, listen, listen. What when were the Danish what cartoons were, were, were published, when the Danish cartoons were published, what when were the, were, can the I, can Charlie? No,
0: no, I'm because no, because I'm asking you a question, which you're really sliding off of. What were the Charlie Hebdo cartoons? Right. This is a problem that is not going away. It is appearing in every society. Can you actually say that you think the Muslim community is no different from any other religious community on this yes. point? Yes, I think there's a
1: minority that's very, very vocal and that will denounce and probably even threaten violence. But I think that, look, the Danish cartoons, when they were initially published, did not cause a stir. Right, only after certain imams were contacted okay. for comment. I don't know why, why journalists are contacting imams for comment on this. You know, only then did, did the Saudi diplomats begin parroting this and making a big controversy. Satanic Verses was published in September 1988 and there was no fatwa until 1989. In fact, the first country to ban the Satanic Verses was India. The reason why was because the Congress party wanted so I- to appease the local Muslims there the local the local jamati islami which is an islamist organization in order to win votes and then it inflated after khomeini out Pakistan. Okay, the but, but, but
0: how does it inflate if no one has these attitudes? In fact, the Danish cartoons were reprinted by,
1: by the Egyptian newspaper Al-Fagr and a number of other newspapers throughout, uh, throughout the Middle East. The thing is that, look, if people have a reason to be offended, if they're seeing this all over the news and all these imams are giving fatwas, right-wing Islamist imams, of course, if you give them a reason to be offended in that sense, then yes, they're going to be offended. Most people are going to ignore it. Which is which, which is what which is what the Charlie Hebdo cartoons happened. It's, it's not Charlie a matter. It, okay, for four years. I, I
0: I will grant you that most or at least many Muslims will ignore it. Right. So I'm not saying that most Muslims will kill you with their own hands if you yeah. cartoon the Prophet. Okay, but a disconcerting number of them will, and a disconcerting number will acquiesce to that, or apologize for it, or tacitly support it, or not condemn it, and a disconcerting number of liberal apologists, non-Muslims, secularists like Glenn Greenwald will focus on the ostensible racism of the cartoons and not on the fact that the cartoonists were murdered.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I I defended the Charlie Hebdo cartoonist. And what I'm saying is that, look, there is this right-wing... Fringe. I think it's a fringe. you think it's central. They're extremists. They're Salafists, okay. Islamists, whatever you want to call but it, it. But, the, but it's And ne- we should isolate them and oppose them rather than saying all these Muslims over here are so emotional that they can't take a joke. This, this is the point that I'm making. That the Danish cartoons, the Satanic verses, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons initially did not cause controversy because people ignored them. People are busy. They got shit to do, you know? But once you start calling up the Imams no. and making this a big political issue and the Saudi diplomats and the Pakistani diplomats are, are want, want this kind of stuff to be banned, then yes, the the people who are pro Sam, think about this. The people who were protesting in authoritarian countries against these cartoons, these people are not allowed to protest, right? How how did all a hundred thousand protesters or whatever the number was show up into authoritarian squares that are closed off for demonstrations? and that those images are repeated on Western media and we see, oh, look at all those Muslims that are so emotional, right? This this was politicized by certain actors with their own interests in mind. And like, those are the people, those actors are the ones that I wanna isolate and that I wanna oppose by supporting the leftists and progressives who are opposing them, rather than saying, let's paint a blank brush and say it's all Muslims. That's my ideology and that's what I'm trying
0: okay, okay. to do. And no, I don't think no, one, helpful, no one, No one has said, I have never said it's all Muslims. In fact, every time I talk about this, I I'm careful to differentiate, the again, the concentric circles of commitment to these ideas, right? So, yes, there are many Muslims who don't care about cartoons, but many, many more Muslims are dodging the issue wh- the, the way— I think you're dodging it here, which is— How am I dodging
1: it? Please there, tell me how I'm dodging there it. There is
0: an intolerable difference between the status quo in the Muslim world, and the Muslim world is, not, is now our world, it's not just in the Middle East, There's a difference between how Muslims will respond at whatever percentage we're talking about to criticism, to jokes, to art they don't like, to novels they don't like and even haven't read but just heard they wouldn't like if they read them, to dissidence, to apostasy, to free speech. I mean, you know, I could give you the same deal I gave Glenn Greenwald. I mean, we can settle this with a duel of cartoon contests, right? You do a you do a cartoon contest for Islam, and I'll do one for any other religion on Earth. Mm. You want to take me up on that? Well, I mean, let me, let me think about this at least. Okay, yeah, and then send me a postcard from the Witness Protection Program.
1: Yeah, I mean, look. No, 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 no! But
0: uh, don't change the subject. This, I'm not changing the subject. Status I'm quo, here, the status quo. The status quo here, just here really is intolerable. That you just posted. No, I, no, but it's not simplistic because it would completely fuck up your life. Okay, is Islam the problem here? Yes. It's Islam. The pro- it's not the politics and the, the the political actors on the. No, because there are people with no political grievances, personally none, right? People who are just living their lives, but who I'll tell you, what, here here's a story, right? That I'm I'm simply one node away from, which I mean, this is technically hearsay. I mean, I wasn't in the room when this happened, but this is a a story which I believe to be factual. One of my own doctors, okay. Was having lunch with an Indian Muslim doctor in India, right? And mm. brought up the Salman Rushdie affair. And mm. this is now going back decades. To this closer to the. This is when Rushdie was in hiding, and he had you know his excruciating security concerns. So he, two colleagues talking, right? You know, and you know the doctor I know is an incredibly well esteemed doctor. And presumably his Indian colleague was a real doctor. He certainly said he was. And they brought this up, and he asked him what he thought about this. And he said that he would have killed Rushdie with his own hands. Mm. Okay. Now, this is not a—this may be a— is how did a your ma- friend respond? Or how did your doctor respond? It is, I mean, just horrified. I mean, a horror that, you know, ends relationships and eclipses all possibility of conversation, right? There's nothing yeah. to say, right? I mean, you and I are having a hard enough time having a conversation. But well, I would have sat there and debated that person. And okay, well, okay, then well, figure figured what, out why, where, why, where, why does it think that? Okay, Point it, to yeah, me in the quran yeah, yeah, where he, it says you can kill. He told him. It, he, be, he believed it was a religious obligation. This, 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 bullshit, the, okay. the, the man had blasphemed. The penalty for blasphemy is death. Yeah, this is not that's rocket total, science, Omer. Is,
1: that's that's total total bullshit, and he should have sat there. It's and, not and bullshit. Debated him. Are, are you
0: telling me that, that that you cannot get a the penalty for blasphemy being death out of a reading of the hadith? I mean, look. So first of all, many Muslims don't adhere yes, to yes. Many Muslims the, don't ignore and, the and hadith, and some do. Okay, into, look, totally. some do.
1: Let's let, let's let's take the fundamentalists and all the people who who protest in in the squares, okay? And let's take all of their views as given and even as authentic. Um, you still would not be able to reduce their protesting, their, their demands, um, their very totalitarian mindset... To just a reading of the text, which is what you want to focus on, there are all these other political factors that they stood that are what stoked is by the, their emirs. What is the
0: political factor of a well-to-do Muslim doctor in India? But, but I
1: don't know this guy. I mean, you're pre- asking no, me to. You're but, giving but,
0: me one view of his. No, but these examples. These examples are endless. He, he's a fascist,
1: okay? Maybe that—that's it no. that, that to me. No, he's just, to know no, he's a fascist. No, he's just
0: someone who thinks that the penalty for blasphemy is death for, re- yeah, for rather he, obvious religious reasons.
1: Right, and he's on a political spectrum that's on the far right. I, I I've met these people all the time. I've debated with these kinds of people. I've had a conversation in my living room with like an extended friend of a friend who was a liberal on many issues and somehow was defending stoning. Right, and I told him to his face that you're okay. a
0: religious fascist. Right. Okay, no, 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 stop! But, but no, he's no, not. But it's perfect. It's, it's perfect. He's not a religious fascist. You just said he's a liberal on so many other issues, but he's defending stoning. Yeah, but, but Why is he defending he stoning?
1: He defending, you couldn't defend it on
0: the contemporary yes, grounds. That but many it's in do. the books, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not here as a theologian to defend stop. the Quran. Stop. He has a religious reason and only a religious reason to defend what would otherwise obviously be a, b- a barbaric practice that even his politics repudiate. That no. is a fucking science experiment psychologically showing you that it was not his politics. Yeah, it I mean, was his look, religion.
1: religion re- yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not going dis- to Dispute the violence in the Quran that people are violent who are religious just, I mean, in this case. But you this have been case,
0: arguing a background assumption of everything you've said is that it's all politics. And here no, you've it's got not your all friend, politics. religion, religion. Okay, and I've got another friend who, for him, Islam means everything. I mean,
1: not not only Islam means everything, but for him, Islam means assisting the poor, which he also has textual support for. It's yeah. contradictory. There's schizophrenic. There's a schizophrenic relationship between the mind and the text, and you have to d- choose what you're going to interpret and how you're going to interpret it. This is how. Look. Whatever whatever platonic ideal you have about religious Muslims, I was a religious Muslim. I have no this platonic is, this, ideal about religious Muslims. Mo- this is how Muslims actually live their life. They take text, they interpret it, and oftentimes, yes, they're going to agree with positions that they would not necessarily agree with, but for emotional reasons, because I can present to him all the evidence against stoning, and he has nothing to say to me, he'll go silent and he'll run away. The, for, for those reasons that they end up taking up those positions. Muslims, as they actually live, of course... They selectively pick and they selectively choose and they focus on particular interpretations and particular verses. And I think that but no, my no, broader that, point but is it, that we
0: shouldn't, we shouldn't remove politics from the discussion. This, uh, well, I, I, I have never divorced politics entirely from the discussion, except, you, in, those, except in those cases where it's obviously not the, the necessary and sufficient factor. And in this case, you just gave me a perfect one. You've got someone who's got liberal politics, and yet he's still attached to the validity of stoning people to death for what? Adult? I mean, so yeah, a- he gives he gives
1: he gives religious examples, and then look, remember the uh, earlier today I said but, that. But, but, but wait a minute, I, wait, I, I, wait, I don't wait. want to
0: miss this point. Or I okay, say- no, no, no. I,
1: I, I'm fleshing it out. I'm fleshing it. out. I promise, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dodge you, and if I do, then bring me back to it. But um, earlier, I said that religiously conservative and peaceful people who are peaceful Muslims will interpret and then they will neutralize. So if we continue this conversation along the stoning line, he would say, but Sharia demands that there are four witnesses to the act of adultery, therefore no one's going to be stoned. Right. So, so of course, he's, see, see, now you can say, oh, he's still violent. He still believes it. But he's rationalized it to himself where it's not existent anymore. But he can still believe in it and still claim to be a good Muslim because he doesn't want to feel like he's a sinner. This is how people do it. They proceed dialectically through it. So, it's not a- enough to just reduce it to, oh, he believes in stoning. He's a liberal. He's a bad person. He's a religious theocrat. Right. Like th- that's how he would respond to you, Sam. And so, I'm trying, the, like, the point I'm trying to make is that it's more complicated
0: than you have it. No, no, it's not more complicated than I have it. The only reason why he would ever get it into his head that maybe sometimes you want to stone people to death is because it's in his holy book. If it wasn't in there, he wouldn't think it. And he certainly wouldn't get it from his liberal politics. Okay? Yeah. And if it's a religious person and if it's in it, office and if it's said in the book that you need five witnesses, he would think there needs to be five witnesses. And if it said in the book you don't need any witnesses, well, then he would think that, and he he would find it even more tempting to stone people to death and so, this is the point. I don't know. I mean, look, this, this is the point I always make. Will not be tempted to okay. okay, so this they so agree this... with
1: it in the abstract. The way may, many people okay, agree with all kinds of ideals. If in the we
0: know anything about our world, there's a significant number of people who agree with it. In fact, and are moved emotionally and behaviorally to act on these precepts. And ISIS is the perfect example. So let's and, isolate them and combat them. I don't know why we're talking about
1: all these peaceful
0: Muslims and that you because, keep lumping in
1: saying we're at war with Islam.
0: Because it's all on a continuum. And you're talking with your, the far right here, liberal, Your liberal friend, whose only bulwark against stoning his sister to death for adultery or fornication is that he would have to find four witnesses rather than two, that's right? That's nonsense. No, that's uh, not. that's not true. He he would have a moral argument against
1: it if, I, if we kept proceeding along these lines okay, but, dialectically but the and fact, I said assume okay.
0: that the fact that you have to waste any time at all is the problem. Well, I mean, welcome it, it, to that's the reality the of the world. People but, are religious; they yes, live in these traditions. No, but it's only and the reality gonna, under Islam at the moment. That's the problem. I and mean, they come back to the cartoon contest. Boy, I wouldn't I wouldn't let you if you were stupid enough to accept my challenge for a cartoon contest duel. I wouldn't no, let I you do it. No,
1: Sam. I'm not going to accept it. No, no, I'm no to do i'm busy don't,
0: don't kid yourself it takes no time and it wouldn't be a matter of time wasted you'd be wasting your life and you know it
1: okay uh, i here here's what i did do which is write an article in the new republic and shared it widely saying that the charlie hebdo cartoons should be reprinted didn't get any threats based on that and if there were then uh you know we'll deal with that situation when it arises i'm not a, look i'm not afraid of the assassin nor, nor will i be silenced because of what a fascist thinks i'm sorry And I'm not Glenn Greenwald either. But the point I'm trying to make to you is that there's this extremist right-wing fringe that I'm trying, and I think you're trying, to isolate that has very far right-wing politics. And that asking this person, asking any Muslim who's believing, to to stop believing in their text is to cut their religious legs from uh, from under them. It's not going to happen. As you'll
0: notice, yes, as you'll notice, that is not the line I took in my book with Majid. I, I spent absolutely no time trying to win the debate in favor of atheism against Majid. I was not trying to I, I, there's not a line in that book where I am trying to get Majid to admit that believing in Islam or believing in, that the Quran is, a, is is the Word of God is something that that he has to give up or that 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 is the only way forward. I, he persuaded me. Uh, in fact, I was persuaded before we even s- sat down. I mean the, the reason why I collaborated with him on the book, is that I was persuaded that another conversation had to happen. We have to find some way forward for secularism and liberalism within the Muslim world, and that is not, that cannot be synonymous with atheism. I mean, I, 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 I ha- support for the less, the Muslim, Muslim left. Look, if you,
1: if you take a, I'm not sure if you've ever, if you've ever seen pictures of Afghanistan or Pakistan. Yes, Or I even have. Egypt in the 60s and 70s. It's very yes. liberal, right? You see women with their, you know, bearing arms, you see the sexes intermingling, you see a liberal society. Yes. Now, what happens after that, and how do we get back to that? is to support the Muslim left and okay. the Muslim progressive opposition. But, but the wait, 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 just just one quick point, Sam, just one quick point. In the 70s, going back to this historical period, the group that's empowered is the far right of the Muslim world, and you see this. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower had Saeed Ramadan, the found, one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood, in his office in the White House. You know the Israelis assisted in the formation of Hamas as a counterweight to the PLO as a secular as a secular group. Look, this is we we ha- are complicit partly in this, and to get back to a political leftism and progressivism and an openness, it requires having democracy and stability and not bombs there, right? To get to that point. It was there before. It was there in the 50s and 60s. You had liberal open societies, right? Now we have conservative and very closed ones, closed-minded ones in many cases, where the right is is on the upsurge. And it's
0: possible to get there, but that's a political conversation that we need to be having. Well, listen, I mean, there's nothing... In what I've said or or written, and and in fact, to the contrary, I've often written and said this, that, that we have to support liberal voices in the Muslim world. But the main obstacle to that support is the apologetics. For the illiberalism in the Muslim world, both from Muslims and non-Muslims who are just e- either deluded by political correctness or false charges of racism and bigotry or bullied into it, uh, who think that you can't criticize the illiberalism of Muslims. And, and when that li- illiberalism comes directly out of the texts, we should honestly be able to say that there's a connection between what people hold as their sincere religious beliefs end their, what you're calling their political attitudes. If you want to join politics and religion at the hip and always mention them in the the same sentence, fine, but there's still the religious origin of specific ideas around blasphemy, apostasy, the status of women, the Mm -hmm. expectation of paradise after death. You interpret them to be meaningless or to
1: be be liberal. Uh, Look, a, a holy book is more like, and I think you'll agree with me, it's more like a novel than it is like a non-fiction book. And not only in the sense that it's fictional, because it's true to the to the people who read it, but in the sense that it's contradictory and that you can take whatever messages you want from it, no, depending, well, on your, depending on your uh, depending for Unfortunately not. I'm okay, myself- so how do you, you square there's no compulsion in religion to go and kill people? Depending, if I read that, I'm going to be focusing on no compulsion in religion. But if you take me from Toronto, Canada, and you drop me into Raqqa, Syria, or into Damascus, or into the Northwest Frontier Province, I might have a different opinion on that matter. Right. Because I'm not educated and because there are drones flying above or because I've been radicalized by some organization. Right. So, I mean, fundamentally, and this is to my broader point as well, I can see, of course, religious beliefs matter. They have a very important influence on consequences. What I'm also saying is that surrounding and underlying political and social circumstances also matter, which is which help explain why terrorism and Islamic terrorism, Muslim terrorism today is such a such a grave problem in a way that it wasn't. Okay.
0: Okay. But again, the the specific ideas matter. The specific doctrines matter. Specifics of theology matter. And the problem we're dealing with, and so yes, you, you can talk about politics, and you can talk about history, and there are valid and useful conversations to have on both of those topics. But the problem we're dealing with is that now, not a thousand years ago, but this, this in fact was also true a thousand years ago. The problem is there is a dis, there are differences among religions and among theologies and among holy books that are inconvenient, and it, it is hard to justify holy war by recourse to the New Testament and the life of Jesus. It is not impossible, obviously, but it's hard. Okay, and you have to give a fairly tortured reading of the text, and it is easy. Didn't Jesus say he came to bring not peace but yes. the sword? There, there, there's a, there are a few lines there where you can get a militant Jesus. But in terms of his example, the guy, the hippie who got crucified, and in terms of the rest of what he said, the prevailing message is not one of how to be a warlord to spread the one true faith to the ends of the earth, right? And it is easy, given the texts, to divorce Christianity from politics by recourse to the New Testament. It's not, it's not necessary, but it is easy. And that is a good thing. Now, the situation is... I mean, ask a Jehovah's Witness. I think they would probably disagree with you. No, I'm not... Of course, there are are extremists within the Christian tradition that that emphasize the other side of things. That's why I'm saying it's not necessary. I'm saying it's not impossible to to be a violent Christian. What do you think
1: prevents a Jehovah's Witness who, by the way, if you overlap their views with ISIS, it would actually... uh, There'd be a lot of overlap. But what what prevents...
0: They don't have a doctrine of... They don't have a doctrine of they don't they believe have God's a,
1: kingdom kingdom they, on earth was established in 1914 and that they they need to lead a religious war of good against evil against yeah, satan's but
0: no but they don't but they they're still waiting for the second coming of Christ they they don't they don't have a doctrine of jihad they don't have a doctrine of holy war the, the crazy christians and i've written more about crazy christians than most people you're ever going to talk to as crazy as they are i mean there are circumstances in which their beliefs are even scarier than the beliefs of ISIS, right? I mean, you have to tu- you have to turn all the dials a fair amount to get a situation, and it may be a far-fetched one. Yeah, I mean, look one, if you put but-
1: if you put Jehovah's Witnesses in the middle of Iraq, I can almost guarantee you that their conception of violence would be very different than it is right well, now. They well, live no, in a well, peaceful...
0: no, no, no. But that's okay, look at the Palestinian Christians, right? How many Palestinian Christian suicide bombers can you name? Right, no, they, I mean, they're in the but, same but they, they do exist. The
1: PFLP, the Marxist okay. organization. Well, there, there have been a, a in couple. In fact, the founders of the PLO, many of them were Christians. Okay, it was that, a
0: secular organization, up to a point. I'm not saying the only way to be a suicide bomber is to be a jihadist, but I'm just saying that there are differences in how these religious communities behave even in the same context. I mean, there are Christians in, there used to be Christians in all of these countries, but there are Christians in many of these countries who have suffered some of the same intolerable political conditions, in many cases worse because they've been victimized by their own Muslim neighbors. I mean, you look at the cops in Egypt or you look at Pakistani Christians. They are not resorting to suicide bombing. And there's no. a reason for it. Now, just, what about the other side? I'm sure wait, you get this counter argument all the time. Just let this point land. Okay. okay. It, that is, this is practically a, a science experiment. You have Christians in the same context, arguably worse because they have to worry about their Muslim neighbors, and they are not becoming suicide bombers. And And, and again, I'm telling you that there are theological differences that explain this. And the situation is reversed in Islam. Okay, the, it, it, the problem is, w- that we have to deal with is that it is easy to justify holy war by recourse to the Quran and and the life of Muhammad. It's trivially easy. It's easy to justify the actions of ISIS, even, even down to the sex slaves. And it is hard, genuinely hard, to argue that they are doing everything wrong. Now we have to find some no, way no, to argue. No, right. that's no, not right. it it is. I or said do everything wrong. you think it's wrong. hard? It's, it's, it's it hard is, to interpret that? It is hard to say so, that ISIS is getting everything wrong. So the 20,000
1: Islamic scholars who know more about Islam than you and I, and then more, more no. than ISIS, the ones who condemn
0: terrorism. Are they are they wrong? Are they, they just
1: doing this for politically correct reasons? Well, no. They, or do you they, think that? No,
0: I support. Again, this this is a whole Maj's point. We have to find rival interpretations of the text that delegitimize and contextualize and repudiate. ISIS, ISIS and terrorism. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But Historically and today, we can't lie. You one, we can't lie to ourselves that that is a straightforwardly easy thing to do because the sex slaves are right in there in the books, right? You can when when they say listen, we have a theological justification for taking sex slaves and yeah. we and we treat them the way we do because we're reading it as a yeah. recipe book, mm-hmm. right?
1: They And look, and then, and then how you respond to that to someone who says that is that there is a principle in in Islamic jurisprudence and in Islam as lived for 1400 years of consensus and that slavery was banned. Thousands of years, hundreds of years ago. It's not practiced anymore. There have been fatwas given about this over and over again. I'm sorry, but you cannot just, you cannot you cannot uh, cherry pick a verse and interpret it however you want today and say that we have a holy war. The Quran says so. Therefore, let's go and take as many sex slaves as we want. There are all these principles that they completely negate. They're Puritans. They completely negate principles of consensus, of jurisprudential interpretation. That the majority of scholars and the majority of Muslims adhere to. So, I mean, look, this is an extremist organization. Their political extremism, okay, again, their political it's, it's, fascism, is as important as as their interpret. I mean, this this is the mindset that they approach the text with. If there were no violent verses in the Quran, and there, do you think Abu Bakr al Baghdadi and ISIS would not exist? No, they would have another reasoning. They would have no, other reasoning that, for there, their yes, views. That that or is a, that one is violent. the
0: that is the fallacy that I think we have to suppose. that there was one violent verse, exercise, example, and it was vague. What do you think then? The argument you're going for here, which I hear over and over again, which is belied by an endless number of examples that I can draw for you, is that bad people will do always do bad things and they'll find some justification for doing bad things. Ba- all these, all things these bad and things. Religion. Yes. No, well, the, the, that's a, a Stephen Weinberg quote. No, I'm not going there. I'm just saying that bad people, everyone believes, or many people following this line believe that Bad people will do bad things anyway. All the people who are in ISIS now taking sex slaves and crucifying people, they are psychopaths who would act, would have acted out anyway. ISIS is acting like a bug light for the world's psychopaths. There is absolutely no evidence of that and abundant evidence of the falsity of that claim. There are people who wouldn't have harmed anyone who, be based on re- specific religious ideas which they believe to be true, because they read the scripture as a non-fiction book, not like a novel, they are committing that's themselves... That's
1: difficult because the Quran refer, uh, refers to Allah in the we. So if you read it literally like a non-fiction book, is God a polytheist? Okay. Is Islam a polytheistic religion? Of course not. It's it's inherently contradictory. If yeah. you have one verse saying that oh, you can, if God. you kill one person, it's like you've killed all of humanity, and another verse <clears> side <throat> by side... Extorting yes. the virtues there, of, of jihad. There right? are spe- so.
0: there are specific verses that you can cherry pick which you can use to say there's something far more tolerant here than what ISIS is up to and we have to hold to that tenaciously until the end of the world. Yes, great. And that's and that I'm glad that Muslims have those resources. They don't have nearly the resources they need. Or, or that I wish they had. They don't have nearly the resources that Christians have because the Bible is an enormous book that is massively self-contradictory and that it does not have any any kind of unified message that's analogous to what you get with a, a Salafi reading of of the text. Yeah, a but Salafi reading. The the issue here, I mean, and now I think we we have to get to the into the end zone here without dealing with really the the meat of your review. And I, I'm sorry for that. We just got bogged down on so many other points, and now we've crossed the three-hour mark. But the issue is that all of the background assumptions, all of the commitments to having this talked about in a certain way and pushing back against specific points and deliberately or virtually deliberately misunderstanding others, that has conspired to make our conversation the way it is and has conspired to make you think Majid and I are up to something sinister and selfish and totally unproductive. And yet when we get into the details You seem to basically be checking all the boxes Majid is checking in terms of the way forward for reform. This is part of the problem. problem, My solutions are different. Okay, look, you keep going and then I'll respond. okay, Okay, but the problem, the reason why I wanted to have the conversation is the problem isn't just ISIS. The problem is that it is so difficult for you and I. I mean, you're getting your JD at Yale, right? And you're not even a religious or very religious Muslim. And you and I get so bogged down on this conversation right and your colleague you're one step away from you know someone who who you you have to argue with about the ethical validity of stoning people to death and you're and you're i mean not colleague it was someone i had a conversation okay. with. all right let's, so someone someone please, please
1: don't domain demean me or denigrate
0: me in no such I'm, a I, way. I'm not de- i'm not demeaning you I'm, I'm talking about the reality of our yeah. world and i also right?
1: explained to you how he would how that conversation would have flowed and how okay. precisely he would have neutralized excuse me would have neutralized that conversation and that's exactly how it happens in cafes all around the muslim world great and until, heard- it,
0: until it doesn't get neutralized. But the point I'm making yeah, is by, that... You, by, by a selective group y- of people. You have in your immediate circle... So, so this conversation was as hard as it was with you. Then you have a, in your immediate circle someone like Murtaza Hussein, who you defended to whatever degree you did in, in this conversation. A journalist for The Intercept, your okay. listeners should know. Yes, and I... Funded uh, by Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay. And he's as starkly unethical a person as I've met in my collisions with so-called journalists. He is someone who I could not possibly contemplate attempting this conversation with. Right Mm. now, I don't know how much worse it would have gone with him, but given what he's done on the page and given the kinds of noises he's made on on social media around this, the possibility of dialogue between me and him, a profitable dialogue, or or, or between Majid and him in terms of a dialogue that's actually going to go somewhere worth going, it just seems absolutely impossible. This is the problem that I'm trying to deal yeah. with because this is not the problem of ISIS. I mean, I'm talking about the problem of people like you and Murtaza and your other friends, the divide oh, between Sam, you guys excuse me, and- Sam, and,
1: excuse me. by other friends, who, who are you referring to? Who, uh, whoever, are you referring to my, whoever Are you referring to my Muslim friend who, who returned from four duties in Afghanistan? Is that who you're referring to? Who, Take this conversation who, up with him. He what, would tell you to go screw yourself
0: because you're condemning all of his co-religionists. I'm not cond- Wait a minute. I'm not condemning his co-religionists. Sam, I am, the, the rhetoric I, that
1: you 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 have used has right. consistently been blanketed. No, no. Right? You, I
0: can I don't want to quote you your words again because it's honestly it's boring. You, you, but, you, you, no, no. But in this conference right now, you, where you're you're taking offense, where no offense is intended or even given here. No, I'm, I'm not ta- taking offense to you. I'm correcting you. I'm talking to you about your, the milieu in which you are saying someone like Majid has no standing, and and how how his efforts are at reform are meaningless and that he's not even he's not an honest interlocutor and you're treating him that way you're treating me that way in this conversation and yet when you look at specifics basically you're you're both talking about the necessity of energizing liberal voices in the Muslim world finding ways to contextualize and marginalize Salafi style readings of the text you want to emphasize secularism you want to emph- emphasize pluralism and you want to find a way to energize All of the kinds of 21st century cosmopolitan values we agree on and which make a life like yours possible and a life like mine possible, that we have that common project and yet this very conversation was pure poison. I mean, I mean, I I don't
1: agree with that. Can I respond? Look we've had a debate about important issues that we need to flesh out our differences on because look you have your critics and I'm sure after this conversation I'm gonna have plenty of critics that I'm gonna hear from them and that's entirely fine but look this is a grand project. Sam, we're talking about reforming or changing a religion, and how to do that. And my fundamental contention was that the solutions that you propose, number one, would be counterproductive and just aren't going to happen. Like you're not going to be able to excise the verses; it's a nonstarter right away. You're I, wasting I, your breath. I, That's I, what you I, think.
0: I, well, first of all, I didn't. will go go to, go to one point you raised later on in your in your piece, which is kind of a strange one. You talk about how much ag- agreement there was between Majid and I in the yeah. end as a, f- a major failing. Like, like, if yeah. he, if, if, if there's not going to be more debate here. This is a totally wasted effort. The reason why there was so much agreement is because Majid convinced me on many points. I mean, it was a virtue of the conversation. That is that is when a conversation is working. I mean, Majid and I started out so far apart when we, when we first met. I, I had no idea how the conversation was going to go. I, I could have, could well have gone very much like the one you and I just had, right? Mm. Where there would have been no book and there would have been no friendship. There would have been no basis for future collaboration. It just would have been bad vibes and misunderstandings. It and, would have been a great debate to, to read, actually. I think it would be a much better book no, from that perspective. The, the virtue… And, and the, 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 my big is
1: that he didn't challenge you on your right-wing views. And I think that I don't that honestly. I, I
0: don't, ha- first of all, I don't have right- Ben workers. Carson, Ted Cruz, you want to go there as well? There you have another example of me being maliciously quoted out of context oh in such God. a way as- I at-
1: you entirely. Okay, yeah, oh, sure. That- you called them religious imbeciles and religious maniacs, and you supported the, the prefer- preferencing me, Christian let refugees let, over Muslims.
0: Let me just ask you, do you think I support Ben Carson for the presidency of the United States?
1: I think you support one of his views, and then maybe some of your listeners will now vote for him. What
0: what, what Beliefs have
1: consequences, right? What
0: what view of Carson's do I support?
1: You support uh, the view that he... um, Which one was it? There was...
0: Oh, right. That
1: you would vote for him over Noam Chomsky for president. And to me, that's... Honestly, Sam, I think that that is... I mean, either you're what, what, you're just what, trying. What just point trying was I to, making?
0: What point was I making there?
1: On it comes to, when it comes to the question of uh, of dealing with this ISIS and, and Islamism. That was the extremism, violent extremism. That's the point that you made that you would support. But ben Carson couldn't name a single ally of the United States. In the Middle East. So, you, here, here's here's exact quote. Given a choice between Noam Chomsky and Ben Carson, in terms of the totality of their understanding of what's happening in the world, I'd vote for Ben Carson okay. every time. He's a del- dangerously deluded re- religious imbecile, and it's a scandal that he's a candidate for president. So you'd vote on this issue at least for a dangerous dangerously deluded religious the imbecile. The issue. The issue. Now, being, why is that?
0: I mean, the only point I was making there, and it's absolutely obvious in context, is that Noam Chomsky. And the far left are so clueless about the problem of jihadism globally and the erosion of free speech as a result of the the larger problem of islamism that yes and i worry more and more this comes back to the problem of the rise of fascism i worry more and more that if the left doesn't start making credible sensible noises on the problem of jihadism more and more people, if given a choice, and we're not we're not at that point now, but if in Europe they they may very well soon be, if given a choice between a genuinely scary right wing person and a delusional liberal, you know, someone like Jeremy Corbyn they will They will feel no choice but to choose the right wing when they don't align with the right wing on any no, other Chansky variable. Chomsky,
1: for all the disagreements that you have, is not a delusional liberal. He is, in fact, the, not okay. only the most quoted scholar, but he is he, he, he's someone please. who understands. He's someone who's under... Okay, fine, you disagree with him politically, but please don't give me this garbage about how he would just let ISIS free, give uh, free reign. He's A, a skeptic and an atheist... Perhaps an agnostic. It's not, B, it's not a matter B, of
0: giving them free reign. It's a matter B, of not recognizing the problem. He said himself the that the local forces. He said
1: himself local forces
0: need yes. to defeat ISIS. Okay, but that's another. Okay. He's but, not a pacifist. Like, it's let's a, let's a, be honest with It's another way of saying. But he, he blames the United States for basically every problem we could name on the world stage at the moment. He says it creates and, a disproportionate number of uh, amount of violence. And yes, I think that's what, factually true. Okay this is a, a rabbit hole that i don't want to go down with you because one we've been doing this too long and it's just it's going to be as frustrating as every, every other topic the point i want to make in closing is that the difficulty of this conversation is that the real topic of conversation for me here i mean we you know because because there's so much we agree about right and yet mm-hmm. you insist upon just what you trotted out here at the end about Ben Carson and Ted Cruz, right? I'm responding to the words you said. No, you're responding to obvious smears based on lifting these quotes out of context. Sam, I can't oh.
1: quote you a two-hour podcast, so it's it's out of context by definition. But I gave you the operative no. quote in
0: the paragraph. No, but the operative quote is—but the only point I'm making— is that the people who think that we created ISIS and that all these people, all the, the the problem of of a global jihadist insurgency would go away if we just stopped mistreating people, right? If we stop, if we stop flying drones over,
1: yeah.
0: People who think that d- can't tell their their ass from their foot, like of course there's that, a complicated. That, that is the Chomskyan criticism of yeah, this and... problem. Right? So, okay, you, you can find why, why, why Chomsky, Chomsky himself Chomsky focus making on that US, point.
1: Sam. Like, let, let's be charitable oh, to his views as well, even if we disagree with them. I, I, Chomsky... no, no, it,
0: I'm not going to do it here. We've been at this for three and a half hours. Okay. I would, I would be totally charitable to Chomsky's views in a conversation with Chomsky. I can assure you. But I, I have heard Chomsky say, and I have seen him write. I mean, he wrote a book about 9/11 immediately after 9/11, which was the hardest time to make these points about 9/11. Mm. And he basically blamed us for 9/11. Right. Yeah. So, well, I mean, there. Look, there is some blame
1: in terms of supporting no, no, the Mujahideen in the '80s. In terms of there is no, th- no That that do, the, do you think okay. the U.S. is completely morally uh, clean? Inter- has clean hands in terms of the rise of Al Qaeda in the Middle East. Listen,
0: this is not a conversation. It's, it's a very I want simple question. It's I mean, not. I mean, it's, I mean, not it's not a simple question because you you are guaranteed to misinterpret the answer. Yes, the phenomenon of blowback. Is real. Yes, we supported the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And withdrew from Afghanistan okay. and didn't yes. care much about it. All, all of this is understandable through the lens of the Cold War and, you know, are not recognizing the problem of jihadism that, that we were helping to foster. Yes, we were stupid, but that does not exonerate the theology of Salafi Islam. Right? I don't think it's- Chomsky would exonerate them, though. But that's the point. Listen, I think that he... Chomsky's analysis renders it completely inexplicable that you could have a middle-class, well-educated, psychologically normal person living in the West, the victim of nothing, who could then wake up tomorrow morning after watching an ISIS video, thinking, "I have to go to Syria to fight with these guys."
1: Yeah, there's a lot of glory and utopian project involved there. In addition to the text, look, if I were to reduce ISIS, I would say it's a selective interpretation of the readings. Plausible, non-plausible, whatever adjective you want to you want to use, selective interpretation, plus gangsterism, plus opportunity. Those are the three things that, if you have those three in the right context, there are going to be people who want to join ISIS. Whether it's people who have to bring Islam for dummies with them, or people who have PhDs in Islamic theology. And again, the broader point I was just making was that sociopolitical political circumstances are very important. We should not underemphasize or deemphasize them, um, and to understand this this battle and to continue supporting the leftist, progressive opposition and eliminating, or at least opposing, v- vociferously the far Muslim right. These are the things that we need to be understanding in the various countries that they operate.
0: Stated that way nobody disagrees with you, right? And oh, c- yeah, cer- so. certainly Majid doesn't disagree with you. I mean, Majid, if you're going to ask Majid whether he support wants to support liberals and you're going to ask me whether I want to support liberals throughout the Muslim world, of course we're, we're onto that project. And those liberals include apostates and ex-Muslims and minorities within minorities. And of, I mean, the, everything I or certainly Majid has ever said about the problem of Islamism and jihadism acknowledges that the first and primary victims of these theocratic trends has been Muslims, right? Liberal Muslims, and yeah. and, the, and and so you know yes yes, Muslim, jihadist terrorism is more a problem for Muslims than it is for non-Muslims Absolutely. at They're the, the victims moment. Victims of it, okay. yes, and I and I hear from Muslims and ex-Muslims all the time who support. The kinds of efforts that Majid and I have made in this book. So, in any case, this is—I mean—we're just at the end. If we're not at the end of our energy, we're—we're definitely at the end of our listeners' patience here. And I mean, frankly, I don't—you know—I assume I'm going to release this. I'm going to have to—I'm going to have to edit this, you know, not for content but for sound quality because, you know, as you may or may not know. Every recording like this comes just replete with mouth noises and breaths mm-hmm. and, and just a total yeah. mess. So there's a lot of time in in editing this. And so if after going through this, I decide this is just the most deadly, boring conversation ever held and I can't inflict it on my listeners, I won't release it. Or I'll come back to you and say, listen, you know, I have three and a half hours, which I can't release as three and a half hours, but I want to cut it down to two hours Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm I'm not going to cut it in a way that that is to your disadvantage, but I'm going to block some of the tangents we went down together and try to streamline the conversation. You know, I'll I'll ask your permission to do that. Uh, Please do. But I won't know until I hear this.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, that's fine. Personally, I pre- I appreciate this conversation. I think that you know it's good that we generate a lot of heat. I have nothing against you personally, and I'm glad that there are many people, some people would agree with me, and some who would agree with you, and that at least we could have this ideological and ideational back and forth in terms of arguments. And so, all I ask is that we proceed with integrity, and that um, you know, if you're going to cut it, that you know, we have at least a discussion, or you at least ask me if it's uh if it's okay, so okay. that. So it's not edited, you know, to one party's advantage or, or whatever. But I mean, I'll leave that to you.
0: OK, well, I, yeah, I would just say that. I mean, I, obviously, I appreciate your willingness to do this. I think Sam, were, who else would read their read a criticism of someone else
1: like word for word on, you know, an article like this? I mean, well, I, mean I, 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 I appreciate I, your invitation.
0: Others certainly would. I just think it's it's a um, it seemed like a promising experiment to run. And I I mean, I view it again. I, I won't know for sure, until I listen to it again. But I, I just think it's, having participated in it, I think it is a, a cautionary tale. I mean, I, the, the, the lesson I draw from this is just how hard it is to converge on even the simplest and at least deniable truth claims, given just the, kind of the background assumptions that people are taking to these kinds of conversations. It's just, I mean, it, it is no wonder that the world is as it is when this conversation was as hard as it was. That's yeah, well,
1: you know what? Most people with opposing views don't want to have a conversation. They want to be stuck in their in their silos. And so at least, you know, I have a more optimistic view than you do on this in, in our attempt to have our disagreements fleshed out publicly, and we did that on a, number of, on a number of important issues.
0: Honestly, when this is some of the feedback I think you will get, there, this was less a debate about important issues then a, a continuous effort to unravel the most charitable way to say it is misunderstanding. But it, I think in many cases, not good faith misunderstanding and uh, assumptions and kind of tendentious moves that are just really don't belong in a conversation like this. Yeah, right?
1: look, these are complicated things, Sam. We're talking about history. We're talking about politics, religion, and theology, and it's live not, life. It,
0: it's not that complicated. It's not, I mean, I, I can, I, honestly, I maybe I will learn something from this conversation, but when you listen to it, I hope you will, will see the places where you could have had this conversation differently. I, I, it's certainly possible that I will see that for myself. I am not saying I'm that, open to that. But there's a lot here that isn't just a matter of these being complicated issues and we have differences of opinion. It's a matter of of a style of conversation and an unwillingness to back off claims even after they become obviously implausible or, or shown to be unfounded. Uh, that just makes this kind of conversation impossible.
1: Yeah, yeah. Listen, Sam, uh, I really appreciate it. I really have to run to the bathroom. Right. Um, and I look forward to following up. Well,
0: there is the primal reason to end any conversation, however delightful. So, in any case, Omer, best of luck to you. And um, thank you. We will meet down the road. Yeah, I hope we do. Okay. Take care, Sam. Take care.